Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show. First off, sorry for the delay. We're on a Wednesday instead of a Monday. Just, Sean, you had stuff going on? Yep, yep. I'll talk about some of that stuff shortly. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. So we'll talk about that. Um, but then basically our big topic this week is I finally caught up with Daredevil Season 2. Yes. And I will give my spoiler-free review right now. You've already heard Sean's thoughts. Yes. Here's my spoiler-free review. I watched the entire thing in less than 24 hours. Which, it, it's, is it, it's 13 episodes, right? And they're all a solid hour long. Yeah, yeah. there's some that are like 48 minutes. That's Only like, the first three. After okay, that, yeah. they're like all a solid hour to 56 yeah. minutes. So, yeah, that was a binge. So, Hey, I, you know what? Like, Netflix accommodates. Like, however you want to schedule <laughs> the way you watch your show, Netflix will let you do it. Unless you're watching on a fucking Mac. I don't know what it was. I had all these glitches trying to watch it on my Mac. Because some episodes huh. I wanted to watch on my computer. And, like, it would just keep giving me a, uh, an error res- related to digital rights management. That's like weird. I was trying to pirate it or something. I it's feel like, like that can pop up sometimes if it's, like, detecting you trying to project stuff. Uh, and I wasn't. Yeah, like, I'm sure you weren't. But so we're, And I looked it up, and it was problems with certain... Like, basically what I had to do is go into developer mode on Safari and tell Safari to act like it was the last version of Safari. Like, huh. instead of 9.2, 9.1, I don't know like what the actual Safari is. compatibility mode? Yeah, and, huh. uh, and it was fine after that. So, anyway, but that was weird. Uh, yeah. Other than that, <laughs> the Netflix experience yeah, Other than weird good. Safari Netflix issues, Daredevil yeah. Season 2, pretty good. Very good, and we will talk all about it. That's going to be our topic this week. Big spoilery discussion of Daredevil Season 2, and I think it'll make a good counterpoint to last week's episode where we talked about Batman v Superman, because one of these things is not like the other. Yes. You could when say. there's only two of them, that's not a very fun game to play, I guess. No. It's like Sesame Street didn't fucking build its empire off of giving you two things and saying one of these things isn't like the other thing, because these are two different things. Yes. Uh, anyway... We will talk all about Daredevil Season 2. I think that'll be fun. And you've probably all had a chance to finally see it. Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks. It's been a couple of weeks. And then we have a bunch of other just random stuff, some news. For instance, the Final Fantasy 15 announcement this week. So lots of different things to get into. But, Sean, I want to start with just our regular right. stuff. Stuff. And, Sean, I have something to say to you. Okay. Fuck you. Why? What did I do? Fuck you, talking about that oh. Digimon game for six weeks. Yeah. Now I'm hooked on right. Digimon. I saw that on, on my friend's list on the PlayStation. Yeah, you I got some of that Cyber Sleuthing on. I got Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, and now all I want to do is play Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. Fuck yeah. It's a great game. It's a really good game. And again, I want to stress, if you have not been hearing our Digi conversations... I, look, I just want to say right now, I am so elated that we have, like, I think for like the past five podcasts... We have talked about Digimon on all of them. Yes. It's like, I've already finished that game. That, that that trend gets to keep on going. It's like, now we're going to be the Persona, Doctor Who, and Digimon podcast, and that is an intersection of niches. I'm not sure we can survive. I don't think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, hey, it's, it's like any life form. If, like, we just fit that niche perfectly, we can just barely make it. We can barely squeak by. <laughs> I'm ready for a Digimon future. I've always been ready for a Digimon future. And here's the thing. So, I mean, if you can go back and listen to all the other episodes where Sean has been talking about this game, it's the new Digimon game, came out here in the States, translated from the Japanese on PS4 and Vita, Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. Yes, still a great title. Great title. You've always got to say the whole thing. Yeah. Because it's great. 
And uh, I want to stress, I know nothing about Digimon. Yeah. Like, I never have seen a single second of the show. I just thought for most of my life it was a weird Pokemon ripoff. Like, I knew nothing about Digimon. And it is amazing to me how thoroughly that game can be enjoyed with zero knowledge of the franchise. Yeah. Like, I can't even think of a good analog. Like... I'm sure you could play, like, Arkham Asylum without knowing Batman, but I don't know who would be fitting that bill. Yeah. So, I'm just trying to think, like, something that is very, very thoroughly licensed. It is a Digimon game. Yes, there are Digimon all over that thing. But you don't have to know a single thing. It's just, like, it's a really good JRPG, and the battle system happens to revolve around these cool creatures. Yeah, yeah, and it's just pulling from, like, all these Digimon from the history of the show, where it's like, because even though, like, I'm... I wouldn't ever really call myself a Digimon fan, but when I was a kid and the show was on TV, I really enjoyed it then, and I have a fairly decent knowledge of that, like, original era, kind of like with, like, Pokemon. I'm really good with the original, like, 151 Pokemon. Like, I'll throw down with anyone with those. It's the same thing kind of with Digimon, the original Digimon Adventure show. I've seen, I must have seen every single episode of that show at least twice when I was a kid, you know? But then past that, I knew nothing about Digimon, basically. And so I only, like, personally recognize probably, like, a fourth or maybe a third of the Digimon in the game. So even though I'm a fan of that, like, original set, most of the Digimon I didn't know anything about at all. Well, and that's one of my favorite things about the game so far is knowing zero about Digimon. Yeah. The only one I could recognize by sight is Agumon. Yeah, because he's the mascot. He's the but I, I wouldn't even know his name. Yeah. Like, I would just know, oh, that's the Digimon guy, right? Yeah. And so, but so I'm seeing, because you get so many Digimon so fast. Yeah. So I'm seeing all these ones, and it's just this great sense of discovery where I keep, like, smiling and laughing when I see an awesome new Digimon. Like, I have Falcomon now. Yeah. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. He's good. Like, I have a party right now that I'm just like, they're all Digimon that are new to me uh, in the game. Yeah. They're all new to me in life. And it's just like, this is so cool. I love yeah. all these characters. And that's actually, the thing about that's kind of interesting to me because, like, my mission early on in Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth was to just get all my favorite Digimon that I remember <laughs> as a kid. So it's like, a lot of the early game of that to me was having, like, my Agumon and then looking at, like, those blacked out silhouettes when you're trying to evolve them into a form you haven't seen yet. And so it doesn't let you know and, like, it's question marks on the names and be like, that looks like Greymon. I'm pretty sure... I'm just going to save and then digivolve him to Greymon just so, like, if I fucked up, because there's a hundred different kinds of Greymon, but I want my vanilla plain Greymon before I get my rise Greymon, you know? So, like, if I fucked it up, I would, free, like, go back to an old save and, like, retry it again. So, like, you, you don't have any of that. So you're just, like, oh. everything is just, like, the Wild West of, like, sure, I'll digivolve it into that. Fuck it. Like, whatever. And it's it's so liberating. Yeah. It's so cool. Like, and I actually don't even have an Agumon yet. I have a, um... What's the other, like, Gabumon? Gabumon, I have yeah, Gabumon. he's a little, like, lizard dude with, like, the wolf pelt. He was one of the first ones I got. I think he's I good. digivolved him from one of those little, like, uh, blob ones. Yes. And he's awesome. But anyway, so, like, I will get... And I, like, there was a point where I could have done some work to get an Agumon, but I'm like, I will have plenty of chances to get an Agumon. Oh, you're... Yeah, Let me, you, Yeah. And you're I'm going like, up and down that evolution tree like crazy. Yeah, I just want to kind of ride the wave and yeah. just be like, let's have fun. But no, I mean, it is a legitimately great JRPG. Like, cool. And just, like, completely divorced from any knowledge of Digimon, it's just a really good RPG. And it's such a fun story. I love the presentation. It took me... There was a little bit of whiplash at first because it's a PS4 game, but it's technically a port of a Vita game. Yeah. And you can tell that yeah, at yeah. first because, like, oh, there's literally no camera controls anywhere in this game. Right, yeah. And it doesn't matter once you get into it, but it's just at first you're a little um, maybe shocked by that. But, no, I, I'm seven hours in. I'm on to Chapter 5. Um, so. Great, yeah. 
I feel like I could have made a good dent in it to start. Yeah, definitely, because there's 20 chapters overall in the game, although yeah. some of those chapters are really short and some of them are very long. Right. So not actually a great way of measuring your progress. And I think you were saying in one of the reviews that these first five are a little more light and then it gets heavier later on. Yes, yeah, the, the story takes a turn about halfway through. Actually, like, by the chapters, it's halfway through the game, like, is when the shit really hits the fan. Okay. But so far, like, it's just very, you know, a casual experience and I'm really loving it. I've done every case that's been offered. Yeah. I love all of that. I've done some of Mireille's extra cases. Mm-hmm. Those are fun. She gives you the ones to just go hunt down a uh, different hacker in the world. Yeah. So, like, I won't recap everything this game is about because, Sean, I re-listened to the segment where you introduced this game. One of my favorite segments we've ever yeah. done because it's And is now so you crazy. have a whole new perspective on it. Now I do. my insane ramblings have, like, congealed into, like, this pure wisdom and insight that is guiding what, you, I hope. What's both wonderful and scary about that segment now that I've played the game is that it doesn't sound any less insane to me, but I understand all of it 100%. Yeah. And right. that's... That's the beauty of this game. Yeah, because the it is that like evolution system and stuff like that is so crazy if you're used to Pokemon, which feels so sort of like conservative now in retrospect, yeah. which is weird because for most of my life, Pokemon has been the only game like that, and then Persona has some Pokemon-esque elements to it, but then Digimon is like fairy Pokemon, except for it's just like Pokemon on acid. It's just crazy. It's totally crazy, and I feel like I'm Chapter 5, I've barely scratched the surface. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, like, I only have one Digifarm. I only oh, yeah, have... you get five of those things. Oh, nice. That's That, that balloons rapidly at some point. And I can't wait, because I'm getting to the point where I kind of need a second Digifarm. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I recently upped my memory usage on my party so I can have more Digimon with me. But, like, yeah. I love like I love how much it encourages you to level up just shit tons of Digimon yeah. at the same time. So you have, you know, you can have, theoretically, up to, like, 12 in your party, and they all level up at the same time. And then you have... 10 on your Digifarm, and then you'll get more Digifarms, and it's just, it's fun to manage all that. Yeah. And already a little stressful, but in a good way. So, I love all that. I just, I love the presentation, I love the moments when you kind of get out of the dungeons and you're just exploring the world. It's not like it's super detailed or anything, but it's got a lot of character, and the writing consistently is great. It's Mm -hmm. really funny, it's really creative. I love all the just weird leet-speak things that leak in. Yeah, because some of those, like... That is, like, I, like, have a lot of sympathy for that localization team because some of that stuff is, like, they had to be very creative in terms of, like, translating some characters, like, weird, like, verbal tics and stuff because it's all, like, there's a lot of slang and they find a good way of getting that across. I feel like I'm even learning a little Japanese yeah. playing it just with the slang. And, like, I love, they don't translate the, what the Digimon say during the battles, yeah. but I can recognize most of it, like, I know what they're saying. And it's just kind of fun. I will say it with them, you know. Yeah. Yoku ne. Yeah. It's great. So, really fun game. Like, the music is great. Music's good, yeah. Yeah, the character designs, as you said, were so awesome. So, again, yeah. I'm only seven hours into what, for you, is a 100-hour game. Yeah, well, that, that, that number is a exaggerated. Little, okay. Yeah. But, so, you know, I can't, like, form a full opinion yet, and I think it'll be a game I might, in the coming weeks, have to play a little on and off just because other stuff's coming out. Yeah, so, I mean, I've played it over the course of, like, a month. Really, yeah, so. and I think that, that's probably what'll end up happening for me, and it seems like a fun... Like, you can tell it's kind of got portable roots, because there's a lot of... You could pick up, spend five minutes, feel like you get something done, and then put it away if yeah. you wanted to. Like, I'm seriously considering getting the Vita version, just to have both, and, like, yeah, it's gotta I was, be fun. I was where you were once something. Yeah. Because I got it on Amazon for like just 40 bucks, so I didn't even have to pay full price. That's great. Nice. Anyway, and that's the funniest thing is I did get like a boxed copy of it, and it's hilarious because that's like a two gig game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's a Vita port. <laughs> it's like, how much of this Blu ray disc is unused? I'm just really happy that now, forever on your shelf, there's going to be a Digimon product just like sitting there proudly. 
I'm, I'm happy it's there. Like, the cover art is awesome. I'm kind of happy to have that version. But, yeah, so really happy with this game. I, I said, fuck you, Sean, but that's only because it's, like, this kind of thing where it's like, well, this is going to be my life for a while now, but I'm so happy it is. This is an awesome game. Yeah, and I'm just, I am so happy that the Digimon, it doesn't stop. It gets no, to keep on going. It does. I mean, this will be a theme on the podcast for a while, so we are, the podcast itself might be said to be Digivolving. Okay, that was terrible. That was terrible. I'm sorry. You can't okay, just say so, that. Can I say one other thing about Digimon? Sure, go ahead. Okay. You can say it as much as you want. So, you know, great JRPG. Yes. It made me realize this year, if all the JRPGs we think are coming out this year are actually coming out this year, yeah. this is going to be one fucking hell of a year. We've yes. already had Fire Emblem, mm-hmm. which is not like JRPG, like the genre, but it is a Japanese RPG. Yeah. So I, I would count it. Yes. We have Digimon Story. Yes, we do. We have Final Fantasy XV coming up. Yes. We got Persona 5. Yes. We've got Bravely Second. Yes. And I'm sure there's others, but if all five of those are as good as they could be, and two of them we know are, yeah. my top ten list this year could be half JRPG. Yeah, it's it's. I feel like Japan is coming back in a big way with video games. Like like it's not like because there was that period in the late era for like the 360 PS3 stuff where Japan just kind of like stopped making games. It felt like yeah, and then now it's. Like, it's not, like, the powerhouse it was in, like, the PS1 days or anything like that. But I do feel like Japanese games are coming back in and are coming over here. And they're, like, important and, and interesting and different. And well, that's a really good feeling. And it will tell you, you know, just how successful the PS4 is that we're getting as many as we are. Yeah. Like, the fact that Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth got a fucking boxed retail release in the mm-hmm. U.S., that is a testament to how well the PS4 is doing. And that's one of the benefits of having a really high-selling console is you get riskier things like this because there's an actual big audience that's built in for it yeah and, it, and it's interesting that you, it feels like those sort of localization companies are a lot more comfortable these days with taking something like Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth which is a niche game and it's also like a story heavy game with a lot of dialogue in it and just deciding not to dub it because I'm sure if like they had decided to like do the dubbing process this game would never have come out because that would be too expensive and too like expensive in terms of time and money and so instead, it's just like, we'll do the localization work for all the text and everything, but like we're not going to put all the money in for the dub and just like put out a like, game that only has Japanese dialogue in it, and that works fine. It's per- totally perfect, and there's tons of games on the PS4 like that at this point, tons yeah. more coming out. Like I could never keep up with all of it if I wanted to try. So definitely a nice era that we're yeah, in. Yeah, so. I feel very comfortable in our Digimon world. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and move on. Other stuff going on this week. Sean, do you have anything you want to talk about? Yeah, I've, I've, I've had a couple of like small adventures. Nothing grand, but I guess I'll start with a couple of things. That like The first thing was the reason why we're recording this podcast a little bit late is that my brother came down uh, for the weekend because he had some stuff with his friends that are still in Colorado that he needed to do. So he was down at the house for like the past four days. And as a part of that... We finally decided to replace our TV that's sort of in the main living room area that my dad uses because that TV is really old and we've been wanting to replace it for a long time. But like, there's this whole like TV stand situation and stuff that would have been like really difficult to put together. So when my brother Connor was down, it was like, okay, I and my brother, like, we can like get this TV and we can set it all up and do all that stuff since he's down for a couple of days. And it's been a while since I had to shop for TVs. TVs fucking suck now. Yeah. I mean, they're good. But, like, there's stuff about TVs that, these days, that are fucking weird and crazy. Oh, I'm I'm probably in the same position where I'm yeah. going to buy a new TV soon, and I'm just like, 
I want 1080p. I want 60 hertz. Don't sell me any of that other bullshit. It yeah. all sucks. Yeah. So, and I should say that's like the TV we got. I'm happy with, and it's a good TV, and it wasn't that expensive. I don't remember like all the like the name, like the five number string or whatever that that classifies it. It's some like LG LCD screen because everything's LCD these days. But like, it just we went to Costco to get the TV, and. The 4K TVs are both a pain in the ass and actually kind of nice when you're going to go shopping for TVs because they're a pain in the ass because, like, half the TVs are 4K TVs. But they're kind of nice because that just means you can ignore half the TVs in stock and just be like, <laughs> walk past this, like, okay, that's his 4K, skip it. This is ultra high definition, skip it, skip it, skip it, skip it. And I wanted to find something that was like anything that said 4K or ultra def- high definition or curved on it was like just immediately passed by. When I was just like going through their TV section. And then also on my list at first was like anything that's a smart TV, I'm just going to ignore. <laughs> and so I went through literally their entire TV section of anything that was... Because also I, we needed a TV screen that was 50 inches or higher. Because if it was any smaller than that with like the way our living room is set up, it, like, it just wouldn't be worth it. So it was like I went through their entire section of like the large screen TVs. And it was like there was literally not a single TV that I could find that did not hit any of those. There's like the the best I could do was smart screen. It was like it had to be smart screen. They just don't or smart TV. Like they don't carry anything that's not a fucking smart TV anymore unless you want to get a really tiny TV to put in like your bedroom or something. And so that was kind of frustrating because who the fuck needs a smart TV cuz it's what it's not a smart TV. That doesn't mean anything. It's a TV that can connect to the internet and stream Netflix videos. That's all that means. And that's not useful to anyone because, one, we have, like, Xboxes and stuff that in every TV, like, I have Xbox 360s out my ass. Like, I don't need <laughs> smart TVs. I don't need anything that can stream Netflix. I've got more than enough, like, legacy devices at this point that I'm not using for anything else that can just connect to the internet and stream Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and Crunchyroll and Crackle and YouTube and, like, the five billion video services that exist in the world. And then even if I didn't, there's a billion other devices like Roku's and Amazon Fire TVs and, and iTVs and, like, all this bullshit that you don't need a TV that streams the stuff from the internet but they just throw that in no matter what. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where it just feels like they are making you pay for stuff that nobody is ever going to use. So that's a huge pain in the ass. It also sucks because then all of a sudden now my TV's like trying to pull down like firmware updates. That's not something I need. <sighs> that's not something you want to see. You don't want to see a progress bar when you plug your TV in going across the screen after you put in... Here's another thing that sucks. Putting in a password for a Wi-Fi password into a TV using oh, a TV God. remote. Let me talk to you about this, Jonathan. So, like, so, so basically we got the TV. Whatever. 4K. Don't get a 4K TV. Stupid. Just don't do it. Don't get a curved TV. Even more stupid. The stupidest. Seriously. Because at least 4K is, like, future-proof. Because eventually every TV is going to be ultra-high definition. Like, that's just how it goes. Nothing is ever going to be a curved TV again. Like, past the two years that they manufactured curved TVs, that's never happening again. So anyone who buys a curved TV, give up on yourself. It's too late. You're ruined as a human being. But so, so you know, skipped all of that. Found just, like, a decently priced TV that was a good size. There's, like, it said smart TV, but whatever. We got it. Setting it up. And then when you're setting it up, it asks you to, can like, do a whole, like, wireless connection or wired connection. But I had to do wireless because... There's an Ethernet port in the back of that TV. That's just This is all so crazy. fucked up. You yeah. can't... Uh. So, but, like, I couldn't run an Ethernet cable from where the TV is to where 
our, our router is. So it's wireless connection. And our Wi-Fi password is a nightmare, and I've been meaning to change it forever. I should have. It would have been easier to just change the password to something more usable than to do, to try to put it in, but I just didn't want to because that's also a pain in the ass. So, like, our, our Wi-Fi password is some, like, 12, 15-character string that's all just, like, it's just, you know, nonsense. It's just, like, numbers and letters. And what, what was most frustrating about it is that it was case-sensitive. It was, like, some of our letters are uppercase, some of the letters in the password are lowercase. So it's a very secure password. Nobody is getting into our goddamn Wi-Fi because there's also there's nobody in our neighborhood that would ever like try to steal someone's Wi-Fi. So it's stupid that I have this goddamn password. <laughs> so I'm putting in this password with a remote with this like really unresponsive keyboard that just pops up on the screen. Ugh. And I'm I encountered the situation where I put the entire password in and I didn't bother to do case stuff because I wasn't thinking about it being case sensitive. So I put the entire thing in. It probably takes like a minute, two minutes to put the whole thing in. Hit go. And just like looking at the like the thing spinning on the TV thing is like, oh, th- please God, please God, tell me I didn't mess something up. Because also, it does the thing that like is normal for password stuff, where it just makes it an asterisk so that no one can look at the password and just see it. But on a TV, when it's like, it's so hard to tell if I put the thing in or not because it doesn't make a noise, it doesn't click or anything. It's like you have to look and make sure that the asterisk popped up. Because the, the buttons on remotes are so shitty that it's like it's hard to tell if it registered a press or not. So it's like this entire time I'm like looking at my phone at the password, like navigating the keyboard, hitting OK on the thing, like looking to make sure the asterisk popped up. And if it didn't, I have to hit it again and make sure that I didn't hit it twice or else like then that all fucked everything up. So I get it all through. It's loading. It's processing. I fucked it up because it's actually case sensitive and I forgot to do that. So then I go into do it again. And then the keyboard that they put up on the screen doesn't have, like, a caps lock. It has a shift key. But, and the shift key at least is a toggle. So you hit the shift key, and it toggles everything to be uppercase. And so I'm like, okay, great. And I'm putting in, like, the first few characters. And then I hit a number. And then I realize that, oh, it's like a shift key. So all the numbers are gone. So it's not a one. It's an exclamation point because it's all the numbers shifted to their, like, shift functions. So then I have to go hit the shift button again and then drag it up to the number. Then go hit the shift button again and then go to the letter that I need that's uppercase. It's like, put it in again. I fucked it up somewhere along the way. I tried to put in the passcode like four times, and then it's just like I was like, okay, never mind. I'm just gonna skip this. I'm just gonna skip this, and I still haven't gone back to it. That's still, hilarious. I've just I've never gone back. It's you like don't it, need it. You don't. Need no, it. you don't. They wanted to pull down a firmware update, and I'm like, you can't because I'm not connecting to the internet because I don't need to. It's a fucking TV. It is a it is a pass through system. For exactly. Other it's just it just needs to be a thing that displays color on a on a flat fucking glass surface. That's all it needs to be. It doesn't need to connect to the internet. I have a billion other things that I'm plugging into it to connect to the internet. So that all happens eventually. I set up the TV, and then we get to the fun process of, like, now where the TV's, like, displaying all the images and everything, we have the Xbox hooked up through it, that's all working, but now we have to delve into the fun, wonderful world of calibrating the TV by going into the settings, and half of the fucking settings, I just didn't even know what they did, because it was just, like, hyper, true, smooth, super resolution vision, it's like... What does that mean? And there's no tooltip that pops up. And there's like there was like advanced options was on the the in the video options was just a series of like five things 
that were just made up phrases that they used for their like special whatever like bullshit they use that actually just means oh we're interpolating frames to make the frame rate on everything 60 frames per second and that looks like complete ass do you want to turn that off yes tv i do want to turn that off why is that even on who has that who does that who are the crazy people that want their fucking tvs displaying I, stuff at 60 frames per second all the time sadly i think it's most of america buying these tvs because they don't know better and that's well yeah like they don't know but why are the tv like manufacturers putting that in by default i don't i don't get it because you go into a best buy and again sean and i know our stuff so we're biased yes. but even if you're not it looks like shit on yeah. those tvs like some 4K stuff that's made to run in 60 will look fine on the showroom floor. But if it's like they're showing Pirates of the Caribbean, that's the feel one I feel like yeah. I'm always seeing, mm-hmm. and it's interpolated. It's like it looks like you put like you know like a Vaseline over the lens, yeah. and then pissed on the lens, and then shot through that. Yeah, it, it's really. And I should like stress that I don't have any problem with high frame rate like video content. Like you know when we did all of our Hobbit podcasts. Like, I've, like, asserted then, and I will assert now, that's the best way to watch those movies is at 48 frames per second, because that's the way they were designed, that's how they were shot. It's like the action scenes in particular look way better at 48 frames per second than 24 frames per second. I'm not one of those people that thinks that all video content since dawn of humanity until our extinction should always be 24 frames per second, because that's how it was when we first started doing it, so that's how it shall shall always be per the hand of God. Which isn't even true. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit about that. But if I'm watching, like, The Seven Samurai, which eventually we, like, that's how my dad and I broke into the TV. Broke into the TV. That is an that's, awesome way to do it. It's the right nice. way to do it. That movie's fucking great. They, if there's, when they're showing off these TVs in the stores, they shouldn't show, like, random video of, like, The Grand Canyon. They should just be showing Kurosawa movies. Because I don't give a shit if, like, most of them aren't in color. I don't give a shit if they're not widescreen. It's like, his cinematography is so beautiful. That's what shows off the quality of a good TV screen. But, like, yeah, I'm never going to watch Seven Samurai with half the fucking shit interpolated to be, like, 60 frames per second. The movie is shot is with 24 frames per second. It should be viewed within 24 frames per second. It's crazy that anyone would think otherwise. Well, it's, it's certainly not film scholars making these damn TVs. No. It's just, it's so ludicrous. You just, you want the TV to display whatever the native frame rate is. Exactly. And if that's 60, great. Like, I like that more of the YouTube content I'm watching is kind of starting to be 60. I think that's kind yeah, of Yeah, cool. especially with, like, video game stuff. That's really nice. Yeah, and, you know, I've said many times, I would way prefer developers to focus on frame rate than resolution. Yes. I love a high frame rate. But for movies, as you say... Akira fucking Kurosawa, 60 frames was not something on his horizon in no. his lifetime. No. You can't... It's like colorizing. And honestly, in some ways, it's even worse than colorizing. Yeah. Because it just... It changes the fundamental movement of the image. Yeah. It's, it's just... It's, it's just wrong. It all looks so wrong. And it's just... It's so frustrating to me that that's on there by default. Because if I wasn't there... My family would have never known. Like, my right. dad wouldn't have really noticed. My mom would have noticed because they don't know anything about frame rates. Even my brother, who's, like, more technically minded than my parents, but is also, he's not, like, into, like, movies and video games the way I am, he wouldn't really know. Yeah. And so it's like, but I feel like most of those people are going to feel like there's something that looks weird. Like, there's something that looks off about this image, if you, especially if it's something that, movie that I, you've seen before. I have a story like this. Yeah. Where my mom does not notice these things sometimes. I was helping her with her TV once, and she has this little TV in her bedroom that, again, don't know why they do this. It's got a DVD player built in, which you should oh, never yeah, do. That's it's weird. so stupid. And that's, it's, that's for really some reason, weird. even though this is a 1080p TV, that DVD player won't upscale. 
Huh. And if you've ever watched non-upscale DVD video on a high-def TV, it looks like garbage. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. You have to have it. I still think DVDs look beautiful if they're properly upscaled. Yeah, but, sure. Yeah. Anyway, so she was watching Downton Abbey because, you know, sure, middle-aged woman watching yeah. Downton Abbey. And for some reason, her DVD player was scrunching the image to 4x3 with bars God. on the sides. And she didn't notice it. And I'm like, Mom, Mr. Bates looks like Gumby over here. Yes. <laughs> it's crazy. And I fixed yeah. it. And she's like, oh. And, and that's the thing is when you fix it, the person will be like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay, so, but your TV, once you sat down and watched Seven Samurai, it was all good? Well, no, but then also, like, the other thing, that I know this is, like, it's on every TV, but it still drives me crazy. And this is the one where, because I was setting this up with my brother, and, like, cause, and he was, like, just kind of asking me questions of, like, why are you, like, turning the brightness down? I'm like, because they had the brightness set at, like, 100 by default on this TV, and it's fucking crazy. It's blowing everything out. I have no idea why. I mean, I know why it's like that, because it makes colors pop on, like, the store shelves when they're, like, displaying it in the store. But for, like, actually sitting down and watching something, this is crazy. Like, it looks like it's going to destroy the goddamn TV. Like, it looks like the screen's going to melt. Everything's so bright. So it's like I was adjusting all those settings, and then I got to... And this is actually the hardest thing to find because I can't remember what it said, but it was like buried deep into the menus. The number one thing I wanted to get was like one that interpolating frames thing I wanted to get rid of as soon as I noticed it. But then it's like I like went on a fucking like death hunt to find where the overscan was because that what the fuck? Why does that? Why is that, Jonathan? I don't know. Why has that been a thing for like over ten years now? Every fucking TV stretches your image and cuts off. The edges of your image by, like, it was so severe that I had my laptop plugged in via HDMI into the TV to, like, like put some images and stuff up so I could, like, calibrate the contrast and everything. It was, like, it was the, the overscan on the TV was so severe that I could barely see my Windows taskbar at the bottom of the screen. I don't, I do not get it. And, like, I remember, so obviously we shared a TV for a couple of years yes. when we lived together. And I, I realized this once because I was watching a movie and it was a... a widescreen movie 1.85 to 1 not 235 yeah. to 1 but that still has little bars and this is a great way to tell because it was cutting off the little bars I'm like oh, where'd the little bars go I don't yeah. it's not like I love the little bars but I know that's how it's supposed to look yeah. and so I'm like Sean did you know this TV had overscan and you had no idea yeah. why would you ever guess Cause it's, it's, and what's frustrating is that it's so hard to find and the yes. only reason like I was even able to find it on this TV because I don't remember what they call it but it wasn't called overscan no. it was buried deep in like the advanced options menu hyper super scan yeah it was like super mega ultra mega resolution motion hyper true frame like what are all these buzzwords crazy TV manufacturer people I don't know but it was like it, but it was because like I've had that experience with other TVs of like realizing because it's always like you're like you said it's like you're watching a movie and like you can tell that like the aspect ratio is not quite right because the bars aren't there or it's like you're watching something and it's like all of a sudden you're like there's some like character or something in the edge of a frame and it's like their face is half cut off you're like no sane professional director would ever frame this <laughs> shot in this way what the fuck is going on here and then you dig deep deep down into the depths of your TV menu and you find out that they're cutting out like 10% of your fucking image I, it's just, it makes no sense. There is no justifiable reason for it. And every TV has it on by default. I do not understand this world. No, uh, uh, overscan made sense 
on old tube TVs. Yes. It was a CRT like thing. A billion and, years ago in prehistoric times. Oh, right. But, like, once you went to wi- an early widescreen in 720p, it made sense. Once you got to actual 1080p and your pixels were one-to-one, there's literally no reason to do yeah. it. It's just bullshit zooming in on your image. Like, it's not even what overscan is technically supposed to be. Yeah. So it's, like, it's hilarious how messed up that is on every level. You, we have the technology to just do one-to-one. Do it. Yeah. It's It's... It's insane. And now that I have the TV all set up and I watch Seven Samurai on it, I'm happy. It's good. It's great. It's like a billion times better than the old TV we had because that was like an old, like early HD TV. Okay. Like it had one HDMI port on it. And like, <laughs> shit. That was like, this one has three. And that's like, I'm happy. There's fucking, because it's a smart TV, there are like USB ports on the goddamn thing. So I guess you can plug in like an external hard drive, maybe. I have no idea, like, what file formats it would support. Uh, that just sounds crazy. That's been around for a while. Technically, your TV has USB yeah. on it, too. Yeah. But I don't... Anyway, so... Yeah, I my TV... I love my current TV. But I've had it... Like, I need to replace it. It's just kind of old at this yeah. point. But it's a Westinghouse. And that's, like, a little-known brand. But I have... I had a little Westinghouse for a number of years, like in my dorm and then just on my desk. It's a 26-inch, and I have a 40-inch. They're both great TVs. Like, the default on my 40-inch Westinghouse is all I've ever used because it looks right. Like, it's not too bright. If anything, sometimes it's too dark, and I have to brighten it up for some games. Yeah. But, like, just when I put on a movie, I, I just it looks right. And I'm like... And I don't know if they really sell TVs anymore. And it's like, I'm going to have to buy a new TV and go outside of that comfort zone. Yeah. And it's going to yeah. suck. I have my eye on a Toshiba that is no nonsense. It's just 1080p, 50-inch. And that's all you get. And I'm like, good, Damn. sell it to me. But uh, we'll see. I, I have kind of a small space. And I think because TVs have really small bezels now, I can probably fit a 50-inch in there. Nice. Um, but I yeah. need to need to try it. So, But it's this thing. It's what you're talking about. Like the effort now. Setting up a TV should be so easy. You just yeah, plug, you should plug it in. Plug whatever you want into the TV. You're done. Turn it on. Yeah. And then it's like, there we go. I'm watching Daredevil Season 2 on Netflix in like five minutes. Yeah. I'm buying the TV. Like that's how it should be. That's how it should be. Rarely is. Yeah. And I definitely don't want fucking 4K because literally there is nothing to watch. Yeah, and it bumps up the price literally about $1,000 per TV. Like, that's like, it's so drastic. But yeah, people listening to the podcast, if you bought a TV recently and you haven't fiddled with the settings, you know, put your gloves on. Get in there. Figure shit out because it's, the the, the TV is fucking something up. It is fucking something up by default. and, And I feel like no human being knows why. I don't, maybe like TV manufacturers want to, like, deliberately default set their TVs to be complete shit so that way people buy more TVs because, like, this new TV I bought, like, it's cutting off all the image and every all the motion looks really weird and blurry. I was like, I guess I should just buy a new TV now. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. So can I talk about TV for a minute? Sure, go ahead. Just some TV shows? Yeah. Okay, so last week on the podcast, we talked about Batman v Superman, which was a pile of shit. Yes, Dawn of Justice. But the day after we recorded that was a Monday, and they aired on Supergirl, the Supergirl Flash crossover episode. Great. Supergirl v Flash, Dawn of TV crossover. (laughs) No, but the episode was called World's Finest. They knew what they were doing. Yes. That episode... Even if you've never seen Supergirl or The Flash, you should watch it. It is just such a pure, concentrated blast, injection of happiness. I saw, like, screenshots from that episode that people posted on, like, Twitter and stuff. And there were, like, the, like Supergirl and The Flash were in those screenshots. And Jonathan, they were smiling. 
Character Tower's smiling. It's such a... It's really a beautiful episode because it's at that point in the... Like, one of the things they did impressively is it's really integrated into the plot arc of that Supergirl season. And this is one of the last episodes of the season, so they couldn't just, like, ignore the story for a week. And the story is that Supergirl, because of when she went evil, I talked about that on the podcast, that the city kind of hates her and some of her friends are a little, you know, wary of her and stuff happened with her sister. Batman wants to kill her. And so stuff happened with her sister in Martian Manhunter. That was the whole thing. And uh, Martian Manhunter has gone rogue to go find a conspiracy. This show's great. Anyway, um, but so Supergirl's a little sad, you know. And the Flash comes in, and the Flash is a a happy dude, generally. And uh, He's the fastest man alive. He should be happy. And the Flash and Supergirl just become friends, and through that friendship, like, both learn things about themselves. Like, it is the perfect superhero crossover thing. It is so well done. It is so fun and infectiously funny on every level, but also very poignant. And yes, you've probably seen the gif of the Flash giving Supergirl ice cream. Yeah. And it is, yes, that is the ultimate gift to represent happiness now. Because Melissa Benoist's reaction in that moment is like the greatest thing I've ever seen. And like overall, like I just noticed like it, it brought out the best in those two actors too. Because I realized, I don't know if I've ever seen a human being have more fun acting than Melissa Benoist in this episode. Like just having so much fun being Supergirl with the main cast and with Grant Gustin. She was just like, you could tell the actress was just having so much fun. And then Grant Gustin always is having fun, but you also realize Grant Gustin is like chemically incapable of not having good chemistry with people. He has good chemistry with like every person he interacts with except his love interest on his own show. Oh, that's so, unfortunate. That's unfortunate, but you know, it's like it makes everything else all the more special. Yeah. Um, and it's like on The Flash, it's like the actress who plays his love interest, Iris, she's fine. He's really good. But, like, for some reason, there's just no spark there. And I think part of that was how she was written in season one. Hmm. But anyway, everyone else, like, with Felicity on Arrow and with Caitlin on The Flash and now with Supergirl, like, you want him to get in a relationship with any of those women because he has, like, Or maybe you want him to get in a relationship with all those women. Make it a very different show. Indeed. Instant chemistry with all of them. Like, Graham Gustin could effectively play in live action Yu Narukami from Persona 4. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking of, like, The Flash having a date with, like, six women on the same day and, like, that being a whole episode. Like, you could legitimately just do that because he's, like, he's just, like, super running over to Metropolis one second and it's like, oh, shit, I need to get back to Gotham. And it's like, I'm dating, like, Black Canary, too. That'd be great. That would be, I mean, it would mean The Flash was a piece of shit. Yeah, but, but you know, like, maybe not Barry Allen, but if they ever do, like, an adult Wally West, like, that's, that's some Wally stuff. Well, right I mean, there. Wally West is on The Flash. He is not Kid Flash yet, okay. but of course, they're going there. They have yes. a character named Wally West in the main cast. Yes. They're going to do it. Uh, I mean, I love that this season of The Flash, they've, they've done Wally West, Jay Garrick, and um, Barry Allen, and we're only two seasons in. Yeah. It's great. They know what they're doing. But no, this Supergirl episode is so fun. Again, I just implore you, if you've never seen that show, it is so great. If you don't want to watch the whole thing for some reason, that's a good one to just jump in on because you don't really need to know anything about the series. It's just a fun episode with these yeah. two superheroes. And it even ends with the two of them racing because that's what superheroes do. And that's, that is what super people and the Flash do together is they do a race for like charity or something. Yeah. And the Flash, no matter who they have win the race, the Flash is always the fastest. Yes. Like don't, don't let Superman fool you. You no. can't beat the Flash. It's, it was just so much fun. And I'm, I'm really loving that show. I'm really sad it only has two episodes left because then we'll have to wait all summer for more. Oh, well. Cool. But definitely still... Love Daredevil Season 2. Supergirl is probably still my favorite superhero show. It's very different. They're hard yeah. to compare. But just in that, we don't get a lot of that just like hyper fun comic booky stuff. 
even Marvel is kind of on that level, but not quite to the level of just corny brilliance of Supergirl. May so. I remind you of the scene from Thor The Dark World where Thor walks into a guy's house and hangs his hammer up on, like, the coat rack. I mean, the highest praise I can give for Supergirl is it's like the tone of Thor The Dark World as a TV show. That sounds really good. Yeah. That's that's the that's the best thing you told me about this whole show. <laughs> I really need to watch it at some point. It's really good. I'll I'm watch sure. it once the season one ends. Well, I'm sure it'll be on... Well, I'm not sure, but I would guess it'll be on Netflix because all, all the other ones are, right? Yeah. yeah. And this is a different network technically so who knows but it's all under the warner brothers banner so yeah cool um so that was great and then i also i have not talked about it yet this season but this week's episode was so good they've all been so good i feel like i need to talk about it better call saul on amc i just want to give a quick update on that because i've tweeted about it a lot and i'm now regretting that i didn't choose to just write about it every monday night because that would have been a suck on my time, obviously, and yeah. I don't know if I have the time to do it, but this season would have been worth it. I mean, I've talked about Better Call Saul before. It's the spinoff of Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, obviously, one of the best American shows ever, yeah. and Better Call Saul being a spinoff having high expectations, but you know, in some ways, I like Better Call Saul even more, not because I necessarily think it's qualitatively better. We can't say that yet. It's been two seasons, yeah. but like, just it is intensely small stakes but with the same level of storytelling ingenuity that they had on Breaking Bad and, frankly, developing it. Because Breaking Bad is a show that got better as it went along. I think Vince Gillen and company learned more and more and more. And I think they are still learning more on Better Call Saul, and I love that. Um, so in some ways, I just think there's something in the, the pathos on Better Call Saul are so fucking intense. And they hit you so hard. And it has such a great sense of focus and emotional clarity. And that's all the stuff I've said about season one. Season one was on my top ten last year, all that yeah. stuff. But... I would be kind of shocked if Better Call Saul Season 2 is not my number one show of this year. Especially, you know, Doctor Who's not on this year, things like that. So it can't even compete. But, well, unless that Christmas special is really good. Yeah. (laughs) You'd have to be a... Who knows? Yeah. It's Heaven Sent 2. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think you could do a Heaven Sent 2. I don't think I could take Heaven Sent 2. No. Um, But anyway, it is... It's not like the show has made a qualitative leap necessarily. It's just that I think they've doubled down on what the show does well. And in doing so and enriching the lives of these characters, just naturally the further you go along, the better it gets. And we are eight episodes into a ten-episode season. Episode eight aired last night. And every single one of them has just been a home run. And it's just amazing how... And even last night. Last night's technically, if you look at the script, is a Peace Mover episode. It's things have to happen so we can set up further stories. That's totally normal. That happens on every TV show. But typically those are the episodes where you're like, okay, that was good, but I'm excited to see what comes next. Mm -hmm. And no, this was brilliant. This is like one of the best TV episodes I've ever seen. It's just... It's amazing what they can do. It's continued... Even more intensely this year, the Breaking Bad legacy of having, to my mind, the best visuals of any TV show ever. I just think the cinematography on Breaking Bad and now Better Call Saul is so superior to anything I've ever seen on TV. And just the way they shoot Albuquerque and the love they have for that city. I don't know if I've ever seen a city so well represented on film. And of course they've had now seven seasons of exploring different sides of Albuquerque. Right. And it's just so cool. And Better Call Saul, one of the things I like is that Breaking Bad is a lot of location shooting. It's out in the desert and stuff. Mm-hmm. Better Call Saul has a little bit of that, but it's also just seeing the little, you know, maybe indoor corners of Albuquerque you're not going to see elsewhere. So it's it's just really cool on that level. And just the story they're telling, they basically, season one of Better Call Saul is slow storytelling and, and gloriously slow in the way I love. And I think Breaking Bad could be at its best. And season two, they've doubled down on that. It's 
really this 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 season so far has been on a plot level. Uh, Jimmy McGale, who is Saul Goodman before he becomes Saul Goodman, having this existential crisis where he has gotten the job he's always wanted and now doesn't really want it. And he's in a relationship with a woman he loves who is very capable and, and what comes with her and her job and things that are really very small scale. And on the other side, you have Mike Ehrmantraut, one of the characters from Breaking Bad, basically kind of trying to decide how much he is willing to give of himself to criminality to help the people he loves. And these are all, in comparison to like Breaking Bad, where it was literally life or death every single episode, yeah. those are not the stakes here at all. Maybe for Mike a little bit. But Mike's also really good at what he does, so mm-hmm. he's probably not going to get capped. I mean, eventually, but you know. Um, and so it's just, and just reveling in those small character details has been so powerful, and they've done it with such style and panache. You know, like last week's episode, episode seven, had this montage that is one of the coolest fucking montages I've ever seen on anything. Just incredible. And there was, there was another good one last night. It's just like the editing, the cinematography, the writing, how they've gotten to a point, and I think this is where you can always judge good writing, where they've gotten to a point where they can express so much with so little. Like, there's so much silence on this show, where there's just no dialogue, or the dialogue that's there is kind of incidental, and what the actors are being asked to play is the pauses. And that's to me, is like the sign of really great writing is when you can make that the substance of something. Right. And that is so much the substance of this series. It just keeps getting better and better. And I like, I needed to get this off my chest and just mention it. If you're not watching that show, uh, it is just something else. The first season is now on Netflix, and I love it. But season two has been even better. And just knowing that their plan is probably to do five seasons of this, they did five seasons of Breaking Bad. Where would this show be by the end? Because, again, this is the story. It's a little different than Breaking Bad. They have similar arcs where the arc of Breaking Bad is a good man goes bad. Yeah. And the arc of this is or a, good... a a bad man just gets to like be yes. bad like publicly now, right? And that's the difference with Better Call Saul is Jimmy McGill is really truly a good man who is going bad. But the difference is we didn't know where Breaking Bad was headed at the start, right? Like I think there's indications, but it could have gone in a lot of different ways. Better Call Saul, you know the ending. He becomes the character we saw in Breaking Bad, who is a cockroach yeah. and not a very good guy, and not a guy who seems to have much humanity. And we have a character in these first two seasons who is overflowing with humanity, and that's going to be drilled out of him. It is hard to watch sometimes, because, and especially last night, they took a big step towards where I think they're going to be laying that groundwork. And yeah, by the time we actually get to the end of this damn thing, it's going to hurt. And right. knowing how much Breaking Bad hurt, and I think this will hurt even worse, that was, it's going to be something else. So, Does Better Call Saul ever do a thing where it's like, Saul's just, like, walking down the street, and in the background you just see, like, Brian Cranston, like, watering his lawn or something. (laughs) They've not done that yet. There are a lot of Breaking Bad cameos, but generally of smaller characters from the criminal world. Right. Um, And mostly with the Mike side of the story, because, you know... And I I think they've been totally natural and well done, where you've got to do some of the fan service, right? Yeah. It is a spinoff, and I think they've found the best ways to do it, because basically it involves Mike encountering characters he never got to encounter on Breaking Bad, but you want Jonathan Banks to encounter. Right, that's so, nice. Yeah. It's good. Because it is weird with like the prequel thing is situated in such a way that there's basically no way for Brian Cranston to show up unless right. they want to do some weird scene where he's being like a chemistry teacher or something that they like cut to. I don't know. If, like That'd be really hard to try to incorporate that. Saul is representing a student in his class. Yeah. No. No, they have not gone to that well with the major Breaking Bad characters, and I think it's the right choice. Yeah, I, like I, I think it would be really hokey. It would be hokey. They've they've made all the right moves. I mean, as a spinoff, this is just kind of perfect. And 
overall, I really am getting the sense when this is done and they have these two shows, I don't think you're going to view one as the parent and one as the little kid. I think they're going to be sibling shows. And overall, it's this larger... Like, I'm already thinking of them as kind of like a two-part series in some ways. Huh. In, in that they are under the, you know, they are in the Vince Gilligan verse. They have a certain voice that is developed from the pilot of Breaking Bad on to here. And they share all of that same aesthetic DNA and a lot of thematic DNA. But they go in different directions. But uh, very much, they're, they're, they sit on the shelf pretty equally for me now. And I actually just started re-watching Breaking Bad. I picked up the uh, complete series set because I wanted to... I love the cinematography so much I wanted to yeah. watch it on Blu-ray. And I've been doing that, and God, it's it's great. Although it's kind of fun to go back to those early episodes and see what parts of their style had not developed yet. Like, I forgot, there's handheld photography on those early episodes. They don't huh. do that at yeah. this point. It's all tracking and stuff, and Steadicam. Um, but such a great-looking show. Like, actually, I was watching the pilot of Breaking Bad, which has that great first scene out in the desert. Yeah. And that's where I was like, I need a bigger TV. <laughs> right, yeah. I want a bigger TV for this. I, I need to see this in the right way. But anyway... Just I've like, and that's why I started watching Breaking Bad. Is Better Call Saul is so good, and I have to wait a fucking week in between episodes. I'm like, I'll go watch the other show. That's yeah. good too. It you know, and and on that show, like crazy shit happens. People blow up. It's great. Yeah. So I have to imagine that Breaking Bad is a slightly more violent than why much more violent. Better Call Saul. I mean, I forgot the second episode of Breaking Bad is they dissolve the body in and the falls fucking bathroom. The like that's exactly what I was thinking of. And I've never seen those episodes in high definition. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize like they have fucking bones and yeah. chunks of like. It's, body in it's that. pretty intense yeah yeah it's grisly so anyway just wanted to mention that show because that's one i will probably be talking about again come year's end and i will not let recency bias make me forget about how fucking great this season has been so that's my tv stories nice yeah well i don't have any real tv stuff to talk about but uh, let's talk about some video game stuff that i know we'll in this i'll we'll end this section by talking about like the final fantasy 15 platinum demo and, and more in generally like that, that Final Fantasy XV event that like they talked about a lot of stuff there. Before we get to that, I have two things to talk about. One thing that's not so good. One thing that's surprisingly pretty good. So first of all, so as part of all of this, like my brother coming down this weekend is also next week. For the better part of next week, I'm going to be up in New York City for a couple of days because that's where my brother lives. I'm going to be visiting him up there oh, cool. doing some stuff. Which, like, that shouldn't, like, we're situated in the week that shouldn't, like, disrupt our podcast schedule that much. We might have to be, like, one day later next week again. But, but yeah, so I'll be going up to New York in the, in the week here. And so as a part of that, I was thinking, like, oh, I want to get, like, a mobile game or something to play. And right when I was thinking that, I saw a tweet that was basically saying, like, oh, hey, XCOM Enemy Unknown just got ported to the Vita out of nowhere. It did? XCOM Enemy Unknown Plus is on the Vita right now. Before I say anything else, do not get this port. Okay. Do not even fucking think about getting this port. It's only $20, which is good because I only had to spend $20 to find this out. But but basically, like, out of nowhere, Firaxis, which is the publisher, dumped this port of XCOM Enemy Unknown, which was a really, really great tactical RPG sort of game uh, that came out on the 360, PS3, and PC, I think in 2012 or 2011, which is a great game. I beat it, like, twice on the 360, and its sequel, XCOM 2, came out earlier this year, but only on the PC. And so I've been wanting to play that so bad. And then, like, this announcement came out, like, at the perfect time of, like, I want to play a tactical game. I need a handheld game to play. And, like, nothing on my Vita right now is really speaking to me. And this is on the Vita. And it has all the DLC, which there's, there's this fairly significant piece of DLC called Enemy Within that was released for XCOM, but I never played that. I was like, if that's all in this and it's a good port, I'll definitely play it. But I waited a couple of days to see what the talk about this port was online, and basically most of the sources I saw said it's like, it's okay. And I was like, 
Okay. And I got it. It's not okay. It is really, really not okay. It is about the most technically broken game I've ever played that I am actually still technically able to play. Like, it doesn't, it hasn't crashed on me yet, which the original XCOM Enemy Unknown crashed on me a couple of times, so it doesn't, I haven't gotten that. It hasn't corrupted my save, which would be merciful if it had done that, because I put probably about six hours into it before I just completely gave up. But basically, it's, one, the graphics look terrible. Apparently, it's based off of the iPad release of XCOM Enemy Unknown, which, like, makes some things about this port make a lot of sense. But also, like, the graphics look awful. And I obviously, it should be, it would be down, dumbed down from the, like, 360 version of the game. But, like, the Vita is able to do a lot more than what this port does. This is, like, very clearly not well optimized. Graphics awful. Frame rate horrendous across the board. The frame rate was never good on XCOM, but it's, like, really bad. And But, like, the thing that really kills it is that not only is the frame rate bad, but the frame rate is so bad that it actually makes menus difficult to navigate. Oh, my God. And it's, God. it's a combination of the frame rate being bad and the game just being unresponsive across the board with any sort of button prompts. So it's something where it's, like, it's so awful that even doing something as simple as, like, going to your laboratory and selecting, like, a new project to research to, like, get new weapons or something... Is like I'll go and like pick plasma weapons and I'll press X on it and it's like nothing happened. It's like I'll press X again, nothing happened. It's like I'll jam on X now. It's like okay, there we go. It's just processed, which like that's really frustrating and something you don't want to have to deal with in any game ever. It is basically unacceptable, but you can power through that, except for then when you're in the actual like like battles and like the tactical turn-based battle sequences of the game. What that means is sometimes you're, like, trying to select, like, aim at an enemy to fire at an enemy, and you're, like, you press X on the option, and it's, like, it doesn't do anything. You press X again, and it's, like, it still just is not registering it because either, like, the part of the frame rate is so bad that, like, you're basically pressing the button in between frames and it's not registering it, or the game's just unresponsive and it's not good at detecting you pressing a fucking button, which is sort of the best basic thing you expect the game to be able to do. But, like, literally, like, one time it was so bad that I just, like, hammered on the X button, like, five times in a row, which caused me to shoot at an alien that was not the alien I wanted to shoot at. That basically caused the entire thing to fall apart. And, like, so that's awful. Like, that's really bad. But it got even worse. And this is the point at which I just gave up on the port and it said, like, nobody played this game under, or this port of this game under any circumstances. XCOM is still an amazing game. If you can find a good version of that, play that. Do not play this version because it's not a good version. Because I was in a, a battle sequence, a tactics battle, that just, like, shit was going wrong so much of, like, oh, all of a sudden, I can't see anyone's health bar anymore. It's like, that's kind of really important information because I can't tell. Because XCOM is really difficult and, and like... It's not that difficult early on, but it's if you're making any mistakes, it's very easy for your people to die. It's kind of like Fire Emblem in that way. And so... I was like, if I can't tell if this guy has five health or two health, that's the difference between him dying the next turn or him barely surviving the next turn. And that's a very big difference. Or, like, it just, like, would randomly a couple of times not show me what my percentage to hit was on an attack. Which is like, now I don't know if this attack is a surefire thing or if I've, like, it's a fucking chance in hell I'm never going to hit this guy. That's, you can't play this game if it's doing that. Or the graphics will sometimes not load in properly, so I can't tell if the thing I'm moving to is cover or not, because the graphics aren't there. So it's like, 
I think that's supposed to be a wall because it's right next to this other wall that just ends magically in midair. So this is probably still a wall that I'm hiding behind, but it's kind of hard to tell. The camera would glitch out whenever you try to move characters up like multiple stories, which is basically in every single map of the game. You're having to navigate like moving up a building or moving up uneven terrain. And so that was a huge pain in the ass. Then like sometimes the game is set up in such a way that like you can basically take one move and one action or instead of taking the action, you can do a second move. And so part of that is, like, it would not load in the, like, grid for, like, my movement stuff. So it's like, I can't tell if moving here is using up one movement action and will this allow me to shoot. Or if that's just far enough away that it is two movement actions and thus my guy will just be standing out in the middle of nowhere and he'll just get killed next turn. So that part of the game is basically unplayable. I do not know how, like, this one review in particular that I read online was just basically like, the frame rate's kind of bad and the graphics aren't as good, but it's just that classic Exxon you know and love. It is not. It is fucking not. So, I took the bullet on bad information. Do not buy that port of this game. It I, is fucking bad. It is really bad. That's so sad because yeah. the moment you said this, it was like, that's so exciting because I don't have an easy way to play that game. Right? And I would love to play it. Like, yeah. I could get the 360 version, but I don't even have my 360 plugged in at the moment. Yeah, me neither. So, ah, that's, that sucks. Yeah, it sucks because it would be a great Vita game yes. if it was a port worth its... Yeah, it's... The Vita is not in a great place right now. No, yeah. I mean, it's it's an old system at this point, too. And it's it's it never got that, like, sort of, like, first-party support that it really deserved. But, no. Yeah. So that's the XCOM Minimum Unknown Plus on the PS Vita. It's only $20, so that was not a huge amount of money to, like, spend on that. Because I had some fun with it when it was, like, working okay. XCOM is really good. It was, like, and it is a tactics game, so it is turn-based, so the, the frame rate stuff doesn't completely kill it. So it's, like, it wasn't a complete waste, but... Most complete. I'm going to have to figure out something else to do because I'm not fucking like that on like an airplane because I don't want to kill. I was like, I'm going to end up like taking over the airplane and like crashing it. Because it's just like, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. We're all going into the ocean because it's just, this is no good. So yeah, that was XCOM. But then something else I played that that's a, was a lot better and just like, it was a bit of stress relief was that finally, 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 after two years, the Doom multiplayer beta came out from my purchase of Wolfenstein The New Order two years ago that, that, was promised, so long ago. that promised, hey, you will get early access to a Doom multiplayer beta. It's like, great, like, that sounds fun. I'm sure that'll happen in like a couple of months. And then a couple of days ago, after that two year, like, two years later cut, a couple of days ago, I got an email that said, hey, the Doom, you have access to the Doom beta. If you want to download it now, you can play it on like March 31st or whatever. It's like, Great! I completely forgot that this was a thing I had access to, and I thank God I put that code in right when I got Wolfenstein, or I would never... I have no idea where that fucking code is now. So yeah, I, I've put in the, the Doom multiplayer beta. I, I've played a good probably like four hours of it. It's fun. I like it. And I like this section of, of the, the podcast that we have now that I feel like is like the last three podcasts we've done is... I just play some random beta that I got access to out of nowhere. It is a weird thing. We're talk about it. Like, it's just it's this recurring thing. But yeah, so the Doom multiplayer beta was basically a couple of maps, two modes, although I only really played Deathmatch because the other one was sort of a King of the Hill mode. And it's Doom, man. Like, what other game mode are you looking for other than Deathmatch? So the, the, the Doom multiplayer is interesting because it's sort of a mix of kind of that classic 90s PC shooter, very, like, very fast, very twitch, 
like you like jump really high, you are just like running. If like at any point while you're playing this game, you are not moving, you are doing something wrong. Like you should be always moving at full tilt. And but then it also has some of the structure and like leveling kind of stuff and loadout stuff of a modern Call of Duty game, where it's like you are unlocking like a couple of new guns. It's not like you're unlocking like an AK-47 and an M16 and an M4 and like with a Scar H and like all the billion different assault rifles you get. It's like there's a like there's basically an assault rifle gun. There's the super shotgun from Doom, which is just the double-barreled shotgun, a rocket launcher, like a lightning gun, a plasma rifle, a static rifle, and like a sniper rifle kind of gun. That's like even when you're using the sniper rifle, if you are not moving, you are doing something wrong. Like that's the, this kind of game. So like you have that, you have two weapons, do you, and then you basically have one throwable weapon, and that's what the loadout is. And there's a huge amount of customization, which that is where the like real meat of what you're unlocking comes from. And it's actually pretty cool because you get basically like helmet, torso, leg, armor, and then two. You can have two different ar- like arm armors, so you can be asynchronous if that's if that's your thing. And, like, everything, you can, like, change the color in a bunch of different ways and unlock different, like, weird patterns and stuff in different colors and, like, color tints and metallic paints and stuff that you can put on all your armor. And you can also do that for all of your guns as well. So that's actually, like, what I found was surprisingly fun about the game is that basically every match that you end, you unlock some, like, oh, I unlock this cool, like, metallic, like, platinum-looking paint that I can put on this gun and all this, like, weird patterns and stuff like that. In such a way that, like, I kind of wish that every other first-person shooter, that which is multiplayer, kind of had that stuff. Because it does... Because, you know, the one thing you're looking at all the time in a first-person shooter is your gun. And in most games, like in, like, Halo and stuff, you're able to customize all your armor all you want, but you almost never see it. Whereas, like, if I get, like, a cool, like, smiley face paint that I can put on my gun, I want to see my gun have my smiley face paint. That it's actually one of my happy. favorite things about Halo 5 is you could do the gun skins, yeah, yeah. which was cool. So it has a lot of that customization stuff, and I like that a lot. And then you can also unlock, like, dumb taunts that, like, you can do, like, weird dances and, like, you know, put up, like, middle fingers to people and stuff like that. Which normally I think was just, like, really stupid and kind of wish it wasn't in the game. Except for the animation on the taunts is legitimately really, really great. That if, like, if you compare it to Destiny that put in, like, all those, like, emotes and stuff that you can buy, I feel like all the animation on that stuff is really bad. It's like, this is, like, someone, like, really lovingly handcrafted this animation of you just, like, flipping this guy off or, like, like humping the air. Like, and it's, it's the most juvenile 90s bullshit, but it's Doom, so it's, like, it kind of just fits in with everything. And the fact that, like, so much craftsmanship went into making those animations is that I legitimately got at a point where it's, like, I kind of liked playing them just because I appreciated how good... And, like, some of them were really creative where there was, like, what, like a skeet shoot one where it's, like, you pretended to throw frisbee and like aim with an invisible gun and shoot it it's like some of the taunts are really creative and there's like a billion of them because you're constantly unlocking them so all that stuff like the packaging around the multiplayer like really grew on me across my playing it because i like sort of like spread a bunch of like small multiplayer sessions across the the like weekend i had access to it and so all that stuff was fun but then the main game while it's very sort of like basic is like surprisingly really addicting in that like there's something about that, like, you just run really fast. You're not sprinting. There's no sprint because you are always sprinting. Like, you are always moving at full speed. You have, like, a double jump, and you're just, like, jumping around constantly. And I basically, I just had the shotgun and the rocket launcher at all times because it's Doom. If you're not using the shotgun and the rocket launcher, why are you even playing this game? It's just, like, running around at full speed, like, right up in a dude's face and shoot him with the shotgun. And then it's, like, if he's not dead because I missed, like, I just double jump out of the way and, like, run all the way around the map in, like, two seconds and, like, find him again after I've reloaded the shotgun, which 
when I say reload of the shotgun, I mean just like in animation plays of you like unloading the shells and putting them back in after every time you shoot the gun. That is not to say that there's reloading in the game because there isn't. They just straight up were like, nope, it's Doom. You don't reload. Like if you're using a, an assault rifle, like you're just shooting. If you have 200 bullets that you've picked up for the assault rifle, you just shoot all 200 of those bullets. You are not slopping out magazines at any point. Because funny. Like, straight up, when you look at, like, the control screen, this, like, square and triangle on the PS4 controller don't do anything at all. Like, you jump with X, you duck with with circle, you shoot with R2, you have an alternate fire with L2 because there's no aim down sights because that would slow things down too much. I think R1 is throw grenade, and pretty sure L1 is switch weapon. And that's it. That's, like, all of your controls for the entire game, and then all your emotes are on the D-pad. And so, yeah, there is something that, like... It's not necessarily the most complex sort of like multiplayer experience you could ever find. There's not a huge amount of strategy to it. Though there is like a lot of twitch skill at like being able to get up into a guy with your shotgun and like shoot him. And if like he has a bunch of armor on because there's no regenerating health. It's like Doom in that regard where you find health pickups and armor pickups around the level. If they survive that shotgun shot, it's about you trying to live long enough enough to load up that shotgun again to get another, another shot off on the guy and stuff like that. That's like... There's something very viscerally satisfying about that gameplay that if I do end up getting Doom, like if like the single player stuff seems like it's really good, I might pick up this game when it's on sale. And like I could see myself like playing bits of this multiplayer for like months of just like, you know, I'll like like if I'm having just sort of like a stressful day, you just like you go home at night, you put in Doom, and it's like you're just like running at like fifty miles an hour shooting people with shotguns and watching them explode while you're like jumping all over the place and stuff. That's a good time. It's fun. I liked it. I liked it way more than I was expecting because I was expecting it to just kind of be like exactly what it is, only boring, but it is exactly what it is, and it's really fun. So It sounds awesome. Like, yeah. So do you think this will be worth playing when it comes out? It, it totally depends on what the single-player stuff is because like, I don't know how expansive the multiplayer the suite of the game is because I said this had like two modes and a handful of maps, so it's hard to tell like how much content there will be there on that side. But, like, Doom, to me, is all about the single player, and I love Doom. That I played, like, the Xbox Live Arcade release of that game for the 360, and that's a great version of that game, and it plays really well. Kind of funny, I had never played Doom in my life. Yeah. And uh, this weekend, everyone was playing the multiplayer beta, and I didn't have access to that, so I was like, well, it actually just went up on Xbox Live backwards compatibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I paid five bucks, and I was playing it on my Xbox One, and I didn't play that much of it, maybe 20 minutes, but I'll have to go back and play more, because it, as you say, runs really well, yeah. and that's a cool version. That, that game holds up really well, because yeah. first-person shooters are not made like Doom anymore, and like kind of even like back then, other first-person shooters didn't quite have that like combat feel that Doom has. So like to me, Doom is all about the single-player, and so if this new Doom game has like a really interesting single-player that like with the multiplayer, takes a lot of inspirations from Doom and sort of ignore the way that first-person shooters have evolved since then, but then also, like, put in some of, like, the packaging and the nice sort of, like, ease-of-life features that we've, we've discovered along the way. Like, I think it could be a really interesting game. Like, it, it totally depends on how that side of the game is handled, though. Yeah, like, this is definitely a game where it's on my radar. I will definitely play it if it sounds like it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, like, I... And, yeah, like, that multiplayer stuff, if they figure out how to make, like fun, like, big combat arenas in the single player that give you a lot of variety and, like, room to move and stuff like that, and really interesting enemies to fight, I think it could be a really good game, because just the feel of moving and shooting in the multiplayer is down 100%, so. Nice. Yeah. Did you ever finish playing the uh, Nathan Drake collection? Oh, yeah, yeah, I finished that. I, I, I almost forgot, because I finished it so quickly after our last podcast, because I just, like, marathoned 
the last half of Uncharted 2, and I basically beat Uncharted 3 in one sitting, because... It's so good. That game is really fucking good. And and again, I don't have, like, much more to say on top of what we already talked about with it, because I think we'll we'll talk about the Uncharted franchise in depth, like, before 4 comes out. But yeah, like, my feelings are the exact same last time. Like, those games were always really good, but I think this collection, with the way that, particularly with the frame rate and the controller and everything, makes them great, great games, like, we absolutely need to play. In particular, like, a lot of those improvements do, like, shrink the gap in quality between Uncharted 1 and 2 and make Uncharted 3 seem like the one that really stands out above the rest in a way that, like, originally it was Uncharted 2 that I always feel like that was the huge jump. Now I think, like, the qualities that make Uncharted 3 really special do shine a lot more in this version, so... And that was my experience with yeah. it, having played it for the first time that way, so... Yeah, yeah so, yeah. like, if you are someone who has never played these games and has a PS4, like, get this collection, because it is amazing. And even if you're someone who played these games before and, like, kind of like me, because I've, I've, we have that on a podcast where I talked about them, like, enjoyed them but had some reservations about it, like, I would recommend getting this and giving it another try, because I think... You will like these games shine a lot brighter now than they did then That's with awesome. this collection. So yeah. All right. So I actually think the Uncharted episode might be next week. So oh, yeah, could be coming up. So I will talk about that off the air. But that's coming up definitely as we prepare for Uncharted Four. But anyway, let's move on. Speaking of video games, yes. The big news this week was Final Fantasy Fifteen. Square Enix did their big event that they had promised for a while on March thirtieth, where they were going to announce the date of the release, which got leaked a little early. But they had some other surprises in store, so they announced the release date. It'll be September thirtieth, twenty fifteen. Yes. As Gamespot is very eager to let you know. Yeah. Yes. So that was very funny. Yeah. Anyway, so September 30th, it's coming. Uh, there will be, they announced their limited editions, and I already had the normal version on pre-order from Amazon, um, just to get my discount. Yeah. But I considered getting that limited version because that cover artwork is fucking yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, it's nice. But I don't know. I would rather almost get a poster of it or something rather than just the box. But yeah. anyway, excited for that. Um, and they had some other announcements. They are making a six-episode anime series. Yes. That's a prequel. Yes. Did you no. watch any of that? I, yeah, the first episode like went out that day, and it's for free on YouTube, and it's also on Crunchyroll. So I basically watched it that night. It's like it's an 11-minute episode, so it's sort of like half-length of a normal anime episode. And the animation itself is just kind of okay, but I, like, I would recommend watching it if you have any interest in the game, because it's a really great introduction to the setting and the four main characters because this basically seems like it's set right before the beginning of the game where the whole setup is Noctis the main character is the, a prince of this one kingdom that has been at war with another kingdom I suspect over some sort of crystal based issue and it is a crystal yeah and at the same time Noctis is uh, engaged to a princess of a, like a different kingdom and so that road trip that, like, you've seen in all the trailers and stuff, and the, at this event they release like, two new trailers that are really, really good. In particular, that, like, five-minute one is a great trailer. But, uh, like, that road trip, what it actually is is Noctis and his three buddies slash bodyguards are driving, digging a road trip slash bachelor party to that kingdom because he's going to that kingdom to get married to the princess. And on the way, his country is invaded and... Pe- Possibly his family has been executed, like the royal family. That's a brilliant setup for a game. Yeah, so like <laughs> so like on the way now they're like trying to get there now not just to get married but like seek refuge because that the uh, enemy kingdom is hunting them down. And so that's like what the, you're, the situation you're in at the beginning of episode one of this like Final Fantasy fifteen Brotherhood, and most of it is just like them driving, them kind of talking about the situation. Like there's a lot of exposition, but it feels really well done, and I like the little bits of 
character that you get of like you know Noctis is that sort of like very broody emo kind of character that he looks like he is, but like the the show is very and I presume the game will as well be very self conscious of that because all of his buddies give him shit for it. They're like they make fun of him because it's like. And, and it's obvious that, like, his broody quality is not because he's so cool. It's because he's really socially awkward because he, would, like, was raised as part of this royal family. So he doesn't really know how to interact with people. I, I'm definitely glad we're getting context for a lot of this stuff now. Yeah. Because before... I mean, it had been a while where Final Fantasy XV kind of looked like it could be a collection of Square Enix's worst hits. Yeah. And I think the more context we get, it's like, okay, that's not what it is. It, or, it, I mean, maybe it could be, yeah, but, but it looks like it's much more than that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend, like, you know, okay. spending the ten minutes to watch that anime episode. I, I can't wait. I have not seen it yet, because uh, I actually did not know where to watch it. So, I mean, yeah, YouTube. You can, yeah, YouTube okay. or Crunchyroll. Awesome. I will. I have both, so I will do one of those. Yeah. Uh, they also announced Final Fantasy XV Kingslave. Is that how King's you say it? Kingslave, I think King's it was. Kingslave, okay. Which stars Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad and who, uh, there's a bunch of stars. I can't remember. Yeah, they like, really like, talked about there's some celebrity cast. Yeah, and the only one I remember was Aaron Paul. It's a CGI movie directed by the guy who directed Final Fantasy VII: Advent Children, which is so, not that good. I was okay. like, it's it's in the strong lineage yeah. of Final Fantasy movies. <laughs> with <laughs> the, the spirits within the one that sunk the company and made them er, like merge with Enix, and then Advent Children, the like too little, too late. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's going to come out to promote the the game as well. So if nothing else, Square Enix is putting all their fucking chips in on this game. Yeah, it seems like they like ever since Final Fantasy Thirteen, it feels like Square Enix has like pivoted to this mode of like we are going to like make a Final Fantasy thing, and we are just going to put everything into this one Final Fantasy thing. And if you like it, that's going to be great. If you don't like it, like a lot of people didn't like Thirteen, that means you're going to spend this entire console generation. Not liking Final Fantasy games. Unless you consider 14, which is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, the, the MMOs are totally different. Okay, like, yeah. That's like Final Fantasy XI is also a thing. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying, they, they poured a lot of money into those, too. Yeah, they've yeah. put a lot of work into it. Anyway, so, yeah, I, uh, I actually did not watch the trailers either, just because I hadn't... They're really... like that, that, The five-minute one is really good. Because okay. that also gives you some more sort of like insight into Noctis as a main character that makes him... Like a lot more relatable than the like little teases we've gotten of him before, which is, was the number one thing I was nervous about. Was right. like Square Enix has a tendency of making these very stoic kind of nothing characters. Their main characters, like epitomized by Squall from Final Fantasy VIII, who is just like the biggest piece of shit. Like you don't want to spend any time with that asshole. And like Noctis looked like he might be that, but like all the stuff I've seen so far makes him seem like. He has some of that, but those are just, like, personality traits that an actual, like, character has and not just, like, this really bad sort of, like, vessel for some, like, adolescent, like, 12-year-old boy to fill himself with, you know? Right. So, but anyway, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I didn't watch the trailers just because I, I tend to not watch game trailers, especially if it's one I'm sold on. I will be playing this game no matter what. Yeah. So, either way. But the big news, I think, out of this was they announced the free Platinum demo that yes. everyone could play. So, there was that demo that came out with Final Fantasy Type-0. Episode Duske, I think it was called. Yes. And there was, you know, some good reception to it, some less good. But yeah. I never got to play it because it was with that game that I have not played. So, this was one for everybody free on PS4 and Xbox One. Yep. And I played it. You I played, played it. it as well, yes. I thought it was really good. Yeah, I really liked it too. It was not what I was expecting, but I was totally into what it was doing. Yeah. Like, just as a little 30-minute game, yeah. it's pretty good. Like, it tells this interesting kind of 
mini story of it's basically if you haven't played it, it's Noctis having a dream. It's kind yeah, of indeterminate. Him as a kid. Right. Yeah, so it's set way before the game. Yeah, and he's having a dream. You get a little uh, indication that his, about his father and the importance of that relationship. Yeah. But we'll see. It's, it's him with this little character. What's the character's name? Did Carbuncle. Carbuncle, yeah. Yeah. And um, your little mascot character for the game. And you're following him around through the dreamscape, through four different dreamscapes, trying yeah. to wake up. So it's kind of like Inception or something with yeah. Final Fantasy. Um, and you get a little hint of the battle system. And you get just a little hint of the movement and some of the music and the visuals. And, and you get to take a good look at that sweet, sweet weather engine they made. Yes. God damn. That game looks really nice. It, it looks really good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yes, it's it's a Square Enix game. They tend to look fucking gorgeous. Yeah. But, you know, we, we have not had the main, you know, story Final Fantasy since 13. Yeah. Uh, and 14 is one of the best looking games I've ever played. But as you say, the MMO, different thing. So 13 was obviously a, whatever you think of the game otherwise, technical benchmark oh, yeah, for that generation. Yeah, that was like early on in that generation. That's still one of the best looking games on yes. PC and PS3. Absolutely. And 15 looks like this could be one of those like feeling like the next generation has arrived kind of games. Yeah. So, but yeah, I just enjoyed it. Like I liked the, the battle system feels like definitely I see the Kingdom Hearts DNA because sure, it is the yeah. Kingdom Hearts director, but it feels way less... Uh, button mashy to me, mm-hmm. and I think it seems pretty. Again, it's it's like you have toy hammers and stuff, so yeah. it's not like you're getting super in depth with it. But I really liked what it was and how the enemies are just there on the battlefield. It's all active, and it seemed really fun and fluid. And the music was gorgeous, and I thought it was atmospheric, and I felt kind of just like fulfilled when it was over. Yeah, yeah, I do kind of wish that they gave you a bit more of sort of tutorial for some of the combat stuff because. Like, I did enjoy the combat that was there, but it is so brief, and it's so light, and it's clearly, like... Because because when you do that boss fight at the end, like, it gives you access to more of the stuff. But even then, it's like, it doesn't tell you how to use any of that stuff, and, like, the how to, like, switch weapons mid-combo and stuff like that. That seems like it's a thing, and it would be useful, but, like, it's... I. And obviously, like, the game will do that work, but I kind of wish that, like, with this demo, they did some of that, you know? But right. for what the demo is, for this like brief like thirty minute look at the game, I yeah I really enjoyed it. Like it's certainly right. something that like it's so small and so quick to get through that like I would recommend anyone play because it it's free and it's not a significant time investment at all. And even if you don't like the combat or anything, like I think like the art design and the execution on that art design is incredible. I think like there's just a couple of those like enemies and stuff that you see that like I did you see the thing where in the first area if you go kind of off the beaten path you can hit one of those switches where a big like sea serpent comes out of the lake yes yeah like that like that was like one of the moments in that game where I was like oh man like that the art style and everything with the graphics are able to communicate a sense of scale with this sea serpent coming out of the lake that like a lot of games can't quite do well and it was like it was that sense of like oh man like that's I want, like, a game that's full of moments like this, that, like, where you're just seeing this, like, incredible creature off in the distance or maybe even, you know, get up and, like, fight it and stuff like that. Oh, I mean, that final fight is incredible yeah. just in this. And it's, I know it's a probably pretty minor in comparison to the actual scale of the full game, but just as a little taste, it was like, this is crazy. Yeah, especially, like, there's some really nice destructible environment stuff going on there. That especially for, like, a JRPG... You never think to like think about that stuff because it's usually that's not like a component. But it's like since it is active combat, like you're like you mess up that courtyard. Like there are like guardrails, like a strew all over the place, and like lamp posts that have fallen down. It looks like a like GTA main character like drove through that area by the time <laughs> you're done with it. Absolutely. Um, did you get the part where Noctis transforms into a wolf? 
Oh uh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. You get to like step on those like plates and stuff. Yep, and that was fun. To monsters, that's good. And like, the, honestly, the, my favorite part of the whole demo, and it's such a weird thing, but it was so cool, was that you could step on those plates and change the time of day and change the weather. That was like. You could just make it like nighttime and raining in the city, and just like see that. Yeah, that was that's like that's just like and that was like I because I spent probably like it's like a thirty minute demo. I spent like forty five minutes in it, and like that was like an extra fifteen minutes of like me just looking around and like gawking at like like wanting to see it's like oh look at this view. I'm gonna go like change the time of day and change the weather to like sunny and see what it looks like with this. Or, like, with, like, the, the city section, like, the courtyard at the end. Like, that area, like, at night with the rain on and everything looks really good. Like, it's that aspect of the demo that, like, weirdly, I was really, really into. Yes. Uh, no, and I played it through once thinking I'll probably go through it again. And I definitely will. Just because I want to go through it again and not worry about the story and just kind of look around. Yeah. I mean, I loved that second area where you're, like, in the little, like, you're, yeah, you're, you're shrunk, shrunk down. down. Yeah. I, it's so creative. And, like, just... From the atmosphere I got from that announcement, from this demo, from what I'm hearing you're saying about like the, the trailers and stuff, I, there's a sense of confidence with this mm-hmm. one that is really um, reassuring. You know, yeah. because Final Fantasy 13, I like a lot of things about that game. I recognize that it is flawed and imperfect on the whole and disappointing. Yeah. And Final Fantasy 14 had a disastrous launch, and then they remade it in a very good and confident way. But it feels like this is one. I mean, they've been working on this game for a decade. Yeah, this is. Final uh, Fantasy thir- 13 versus. Versus 13. Yeah, versus 13. I mean, this was a labor of love. Final Fantasy 13 v 12. Yes. Dawn of Noctis. <laughs> Still a better title than Batman v Superman <laughs> yeah, Dawn of Justice. No, but I mean, it's it's been a labor of love. It ultimately was transformed into 15. It seems like a game that was ambitious enough that it just could never have worked on the PS3. Yeah. So they're yeah. doing it for the PS4 and... I can't wait. I they're obviously the game I am most excited for this year is Persona Five, but I can say without hesitation, there is no game I am more curious about than yeah. Final Fantasy Fifteen. Yeah, I'm basically with you on that one. And it is something where ever since this game was announced, like my attitude has been at like a sort of cautious optimism of like it looks like they're trying to like pivot in a different direction. Like it doesn't look like the weird nonsense that Final Fantasy 13 looked like to me constantly from like an outside perspective like I have no idea what the setting is I have no idea what the plot is I have no idea who the characters are I have no idea like what anything's going on nothing visually makes sense to me even though it looks very pretty it doesn't like gel together it didn't have like a confident sense of style to me whereas like everything about Final Fantasy 15 along the way and then now that we're getting a lot more of it in like this demo and that anime episode in particular really position it as being something that's a change in style for Square Enix, and something that's a lot more interesting to me personally in terms of, like, the world setting seems really interesting. I like their mix of, like, weird, like, retro American cars and diners and stuff with, like, the like very sort of, like, modern, almost Tokyo-esque city that, like, you're in at the end of the demo where it's, like, the, like, the buildings in that city look like modern, like, Japanese office buildings, you know? and But then, like, all of that stuff mixed with the... Like boy band look that the, the main characters have, and the but the crazy monsters and the giant sea serpents and all the like the weapon switching stuff looks really cool. And that in the anime where they have a small battle sequence and they animate some of that stuff, like that looks really awesome and like it gets you excited for like how the the battles will look in the game. And it's like all of that, just like the sense of style and the setting and the setup for the story that they show in the anime, like all that stuff is really interesting and seems like. 
they're, some of that story stuff feels like they're going back to classic Final Fantasy in a cool way, and at the same time, having some of that more very strange mishmash of style thing that like more modern Final Fantasy feels like it's been. And I will say, one of the things that I loved most about that Platinum demo is that as different as this game is from Final Fantasy history, it felt like a Final Fantasy yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. And I love one of my favorite things about that series is it is a series that contains multitudes, yeah. even within those first six, which are probably the six most similar. But and you go beyond that. I mean, Final Fantasy just has a you can't even say what it is, but it just has something to it. Yeah. And this still felt like that, and it felt comfortable and like it was gelling together in a way that is very exciting. And you know, they, Square has a lot riding on this. I saw one analysis that said with the mu- amount of money they're putting into this fucking thing, it's got to sell like at least ten million units. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's it, why they need to have an event like this to like get people really excited about it. And and I think it will be the event of the fall. I, yeah. It's going to be a big deal. I mean, again, Final Fantasy thirteen was 2010. It's been a while. Yes. So it's been six years. And, of course, fourteen in the middle, but only a certain kind of gamer played that. Yeah. And even I love it, but I haven't had time to play it much because it is a fucking MMO. So, you know, and I, I have a day job. I can't make it my yeah, day job. Yeah. But, no, I this game definitely, it's... This and Persona 5 are the ones I am most excited to play this year, just on that level of these... I mean, Persona 5, I'm pretty sure, is going to be an all-timer. Oh, yeah. Final Fantasy 15 very well could be, too. Yeah, yeah. But whatever Final Fantasy 15 is going to be, it's going to be really interesting, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, September 30th, can't come soon enough. I'm definitely psyched for it. Yeah, I got my carbuncle and everything now, because I love that at the end of that demo, you get to name him, but... Yeah. I'm just always going to name it what the canonical name is because right. I'm not going to have to want to try to keep track of that in my own no. head. The only thing I ever did was in Final Fantasy 13 or uh, 7, sorry, I tried to name Red 13 Snuffleupagus, <laughs> but I, they didn't have enough characters. Yeah, fit the characters. But that would have been really funny. I love Red 13, but that yeah. could have been fun. Well, the other funny thing, so I have Final Fantasy 7 on my PS4, the PC port. Right, yeah. I think the Platinum demo is almost as big as the Final Fantasy 7 download. Jeez. And I just love that when you think of how technology has advanced, it's this tiny little demo. Yeah, there's like the, four small areas. You have the entirety of 7. One of the like biggest games ever made at the time, and this it's not as big. Yeah. Anyway, so that's funny. I I'm wondering, will Final Fantasy 15 be the first game that has to ship on like two discs this generation? We're gonna have to oh, get there man. pretty fast. I feel like, right? Yeah. I mean, games memory limits have like increased, ballooned dramatically over the course of this generation. Like we're now like you're looking at most games. It's like, oh yeah, this is like. 50 gigabytes is like I downloaded a patch for a game the other day that was like 4 gigabytes and it's like that's like the whole size of some games that like I got on disc in the Xbox 360 days yeah or and I really think the actual answer is they're going to just have to start getting good at compression which is what we did in the 360 days but anyway it's kind of funny I'm just wondering how big this game could get but very exciting that's it for games for the moment. Let's move on, Sean, uh, yes. to a couple pieces of movie things. Okay. I want to do a quick follow-up on Batman v Superman. Dawn of Justice? Okay. Yeah. Not get into it too much because I think we said our piece last yeah, week. Yeah, that's a substantial bit of audio content we put out last week. Yes. and But I've... Two things. One... I laughed so hard when the numbers came in for this weekend on the box office. The drop. It's not like I'm actively rooting for the movie to fail. It's I am. Okay. I, I, am. I guess like, I am too. I want bad movies to do poorly so that people are not motivated to make bad movies. That's a fair way to say it. Okay. I'll go with that. And, you know, it's not like it failed this weekend, but it went from $166 million, which, by the way, last week we were reporting on the numbers bef- from the estimates. Yeah. It did come in lower. It did not break as many of the records. Yeah, as the it- Sunday... 
was big dropped. dropped. Yeah. Well, it was the biggest Friday to Sunday drop for any superhero movie ever. Uh, and then it had the biggest Friday to Friday ever. It dropped 81% from its first Friday to its next Friday. And overall, it dropped about 69% for the weekend and went down to about $50 million. And... It and is. that's with the movie having virtually no competition whatsoever. No, none. And nothing else opened. Yeah. So the the witch was re-released into theaters. I don't think that's competition for. It it's should a better be. Movie. It's I'm a just billion saying. times a better movie. But I'm like, just saying, people should have been flocking to the theaters to go see witches. Like, just kick Batman v Superman out. Let's watch this great like horror masterpiece. It would be great. I'm just saying, independent horror movie versus yeah. Warner Brothers release not yeah. going to compete. So it had that. Um, and now you know all the analysis. You look at the numbers. It's this is a movie that in one weekend worldwide made like $500 million and it probably won't reach a billion. Yeah. That is – no movie to open it that big has ever fallen that hard. I mean, it's – word of mouth is a real thing. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, marketing gets you that opening weekend and that's it. Like, you're not going to be able to market the movie out of the way of, like, people saying, don't see this fucking movie because it's terrible. Yeah. And no matter how many dumb think pieces people write on the internet now defending it. Absolutely. And that's what I wanted to transition into. So, yeah. I mean, that's the bigger question that we'll explore in the months to come is, okay, they made their money on this one, but it's fallen off fast. What happens to Justice League? Yeah, it's not a like promising start to the franchise. Where it's like no matter how much money this movie made, its main job was really to make a good opening for the rest of the movies to follow, to make people enthusiastic for them. The way that, like, Star Wars Episode Seven making, like, on, like the most all the money in the world, that's great. The, the best thing about that is that everyone loved that movie so much, you are guaranteed for Episode Eight to make all the money in the world again, like, no yes. matter what. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the difference here. But then, as you say, Sean, the backlash to the backlash has started, which is to say this week we got the first wave of... You just don't get it. It's deep because it's dark. Yeah. I love my shooting, man. It's like the most immature bullshit 12-year-old articles of like trying to put out bad film theory terms and not understanding what they are. It's, it's just it's the grand Ouroboros that is the internet like revolving once again and we just need to like ride this train. Okay, so we got these positive think pieces and I want to respond to the biggest thing I've seen, okay. which is people saying, oh, it's just that the fans... Don't like that they change the characters. And this is the thing that I like is so desperate about so much of the criticism about the criticism is that people either saying the critics aren't fans of Batman and Superman and that's why they don't get the movie, which is like, fuck you. It's pretty hard to be a bigger fan of Batman and Superman than I am. Like, I have read huge amounts of Batman and Superman comics. I've watched both of their animated series runs in their entirety at least twice in my lifetime. Like, I've seen all the fucking movies. Like, I am a fan of these characters. I get it. But then on the reverse side, then you also have people, like you say, saying, like, oh, people are too much of fans of these characters, and that's why they don't like the movie. And it's like, here's what's the argument there? But here's what gets lost in the shuffle. Is that it's a terrible movie regardless of, like, yeah. what characters are in it. Yes, it's a terrible movie. It's poorly edited. It's often poorly shot. It's got no sense of pace. It's boring as shit. Oh, it's God, horribly yeah. written. It's often horribly acted. It's got shitty musical cues. Like, it is just a bad... This is what we said about Amazing Spider-Man 2 also. Like, yeah. regardless of what character is at the center, no matter how much we love those characters, it's just a shitty movie. Yeah. Like, it, if this could be the best Batman in the world, and it wouldn't matter, because it's just a bad movie. Yeah, Batman v Superman is not Man of Steel. It's like, I think Man of Steel is not a perfect movie, like, divorced from the Superman. 
Superman stuff. But my biggest issues with that movie is my relationship with the Superman character, and I don't like how they use him, which I think is a very valid criticism for anyone to have. Absolutely. But, like, Batman v Superman is, as we talked about at length last time on the podcast, you can look at that movie on both of those levels as, like... Divorced of your feelings around the characters, how do you feel about how the movie's edited, directed, paced, acted, like all that stuff. All of that is terrible. And then, but then when you add on the how do you feel about it, how it uses the characters, it just gets a billion times worse. Yes. So, and let's talk about the character thing, because, alright, so one, it's just a bad movie, and I have not seen any piece that successfully defends that part of it. Yeah, me neither. No one's even tried. Then there's the level of, oh, they changed the characters, but it's okay, you have to change the... Look, it's not just that they change the characters. Yeah. Let me put it this way. If they put out a Harry Potter movie where Dumbledore was a child molester, people would freak the fuck out. And it's yeah. not because they changed Dumbledore. It's because they did something fundamentally wrong yeah. and offensive. You put out a Batman movie where Batman uses machine guns to tear people to shreds. Yeah. You put out a Superman movie where Superman barely talks, fucks Lois Lane in a bathtub, kills a person as his first action in the movie, and is a petulant little brat. And never cracks a smile. Yeah. They didn't just change Superman. It's more than that. It's he's, a fundamental he's, misinterpretation. He's completely unrecognizable as the character he is. And like... Kind of almost regardless of interpretation. Like, there's obviously there have been a bunch of different versions of Batman and versions of Superman across the mythos. And it's like, yeah, like, there have been, like, Superman has killed Zod in the comics. And it's like, but that doesn't make it okay when he kills Zod in the movie. Because it sucked when he killed Zod in the comics, too. And it's like, there, but, like, you know, we have Dark Knight Returns is obviously a huge inspiration for the movie. And is a much more extreme version of Superman. But... Or of Batman, but even then, like in that comic, Batman is not going around just killing people all the time. Like at the very least, in Dark Knight Returns, when he has his fucking tank and is shooting people, at least he gets to crack to himself rubber bullets. You know, like that's in that comic. He's not like he doesn't kill the Joker at the end of Dark Knight Returns. The Joker kills himself. That's the best part of the Dark Knight Returns is that whole arc with the Joker. Yeah, he refuses to kill the Joker. How in Batman, how in like the next Batman movie, if they wanted like to carry on and use that Jared Leto Joker from Suicide Squad, like what stops this Batman from just walking into the room, pulling out a gun and popping him in the fucking head? Like he's already killed dozens of people that we know about. Presumably he killed far more before the beginning of Batman v Superman. It's like... If the Joker pops up, it's like he killed, like, Vladimir, the random Russian mobster who's, like, went to jail for, like, armed robbery and has never actually hurt someone in his life. Like, he killed that guy. What stops him from killing the dude who who killed Robin, who's, like, maybe, like, paralyzed Barbara Gordon, maybe in this universe, has, like, this mass murder that has terrorized Gotham City for, for decades... What keeps him from just killing the Joker? Like, that's what we're talking about. You Like, the character is so unrecognizable. Most of the classic Batman stories you couldn't even adapt into this version of the character. No. Because the main idea of him not killing people, which is vital to any Joker story with the Batman, does not exist in this version of this character. Yeah. And if you're one of those people who just wants to say, oh, it's stylized, he's not actually killing people. Jeez. You're wrong. But let me go something simpler. It's like, hey, I've shot a lot of dudes who have flamethrowers in the pack on their back in video games. And guess what? All of them died. Yes. He did that in this movie. That dude's fucking dead. But I've seen that argument. Let's ignore that for a second, though. Okay. Because, Sean, what is Batman's primary character motivation in this movie? 
He wants to kill Superman. He wants to kill Superman, yeah. It's unambiguous. He wants to murder him with a spear. Like, that is his primary motivation. He has, like, a big training montage for himself where he he hits a fucking bunch of tires with a sledgehammer. And at some point in that montage, he gets a power armor, but that's you can't, like, glorify that as much as, like, hitting a fucking tires with some sledgehammers. That's my point. His primary motivation is brutal murder. That's his whole motivation. It's it's so ludicrous, so it's just I do not it I do not get this. If you liked the movie, that's whatever. I, I'm glad you had fun. It, this is one of those movies where I, I struggle to say it's okay because I hate this movie so much. Yeah, me too. But and I kind of feel like I want to judge you if you liked it because I don't get how you could. You have to be a really big masochist. Yeah, and in that case, whatever gets you off, I guess you, you must love Zack Snyder movies. But anyway. Uh, I, I don't get some of the defense pieces, which are like, it's dark, that means it's deep. No, it doesn't. Yeah. No, it doesn't. I want to see a thing piece that defends the editing. Because that is, to me, the number right. one thing about the movie that is so bad. That's like, maybe that's like partially because of like the studio wanting to cut it down to like two and a half hours. I would still say that's like... That's still 100% Zack Snyder's fault not, because it yeah, shouldn't not, have been a three-hour movie in the fucking first place. And it's not an excuse. One yeah. of my favorite things I've ever heard a director say in just a pragmatic way is Joss Whedon, when he did his big sad press tour for Age of Ultron, yeah. where he kind of seemed really beat down. Yeah. One of the things he talked about is it was open that he had a longer version of that movie. And they said, oh, are we going to see that? Are you mad it got cut down? He said, no. I will never release a director's cut because I view this as a code between me and the studio. I was hired to do a job, and if I don't put a good movie in theaters that I can stand behind, then I failed. It's not them. Yeah. And of course, there are cases where it's more extreme like that, like, you know, Kingdom of Heaven or something, where there the were direct- like Orson Welles back in the day, where it's right. like, well, fuck, like the whole ending of all of his movies are basically gone. Yeah, they just kick him off. Yeah. But if that, but that wasn't the case here. And of course, Age of Ultron. It's not exactly what Joss Whedon wanted. But you know what? That movie is coherent yeah. at the length that came out. This movie is not. You can't yeah. use that excuse, especially on something like this where you had all the resources in the fucking world and you couldn't even figure out that when Lawrence Fishburne says Kansas, you cut to Kansas. So like. I really hope that director's cut comes out and it's like just 30 minutes of establishing shots and that's the entire <laughs> thing. It's like you just try to fix that editing because it really is like just astonishing when like you're watching that movie. It's like it feels like this was directed by like a student and not a professional director for movies. Like there are like just such so many basic things about the editing of that movie that are just wrong and just broken. It's like there's no defending that. There's no way of like walking away from that and saying like, well, the editing was really good. Yeah, no, there isn't. So one other thing. So DC, they've got that Suicide Squad movie coming out. Yes. Announcement this week. They're doing some big reshoots. That on its own, not a, every movie does research. It's a good part of the process. Yep. The bigger news here, though, is that it's a multi-million dollar getting everyone back, doing several weeks, that kind of thing. And apparently, all the reports are the goal is to add humor to the movie. Yeah. And it makes me laugh so hard. Sean, they made a Joker and Harley Quinn movie and didn't have jokes. <laughs> Just think about that for a second. Yeah. You made a movie with the Joker and fucking Harley Quinn, and you have to go back and make it funnier. Yeah. What did you do? I mean, my favorite part of all this report was that, like, the detailed, like, side of it is that there was... Because we, we talked about this because we talk about these, like, comic book movie trailers and stuff. That that first trailer, which is really dour and, like is very different from the second trailer, which is the Bohemian Rhapsody one. Like, we talked about, when we talked about those two trailers, like, like it feels like these are two trailers for two totally different kinds of movies. 
And apparently, like, that Bohemian Rhapsody trailer, like, the tone of that trailer and a lot of the stuff in that trailer is, like, markets a totally different movie that's, like, that's, like, all the funny character stuff from Suicide Squad that they just put in that one trailer. And then, like, that, the reception for that trailer was so good among the fan base. And then Deadpool made all the money in the world. Yeah. And then everyone hates Batman v Superman made everyone think, like, well, let's make the movie, I guess, that that trailer is actually advertising. So let's put a lot of money in reshoots. Which just makes me think it's going to be a mess. That yeah, never. probably. I, I'm, like, reshoots are a good thing. But when it's reshoots to completely change the tone of your movie, yeah. that never, that's never worked. You can't find an example of that. I'm sorry. Yeah, reshoots are for, like, patching things up when, like, you're, like, into the final process. And, yeah. like, need to, like, get those little connections. Bits everything. It is not like because like Fantastic Four, that new Fantastic Four movie. They reshot half the movie. Yeah, like has like insane reshoots, which has the uh, woman who plays Sue Storm, Kate Mara. Yeah, wig. you can yeah. see a lot of yeah, like really funny screenshots about her wig in that movie from the reshoots. Yeah, because she had gotten a different haircut and then they just came back. So yeah, I it just and there were I mean to add to that reporting, Sean. I mean uh, this was reported a couple of years ago by Hitfix that. There was a mandate at Warner Brothers when they started developing right. these movies. No jokes. You can't tell jokes in your DC Comics movies. And it sounds like that probably did extend to Suicide Squad and they made something super fucking gritty. And, yeah, again, they made a Joker slash Harley Quinn movie and had to go back to punch up the jokes. Yeah. What are you fucking talking about? Also, I would not be surprised if this was originally shot for a PG-13 and the reshoots are going to make an R so that they can capitalize yeah. on that sweet, sweet Deadpool money. And that completely was... missed the point of why Deadpool made money. Yeah. By the way, Deadpool passed this week the milestone worldwide. It is the highest grossing X-Men movie. That's great. I love, I yep. love that. <laughs> As we talked about when we talked about that movie, in a weird way, with like Colossus and everything, it kind of is the best X-Men movie. Or the most X-Men movie. It's definitely the most X-Men movie. Yeah. I think it's probably the best in some ways. I love it. Did you see on April Fool's they updated the cover art on the Amazon page with a VHS version yeah. of Deadpool? That was great. Yeah. I wish they had just used that as the actual cover art. That'd be so funny. Yeah. But anyway. Um, yeah. So Deadpool's, Deadpool's good. pretty good. Well, if you want to go see Batman v Superman, don't. Go watch Deadpool instead. If you want to go watch a, like, a violent superhero movie. Deadpool's great. Yeah. Hey, guess what? Deadpool is a character. He kills people. He's supposed to kill people. It's yes. Deadpool. If you want a hero that kills someone, Deadpool's a good one to go to. Absolutely. Um, so let's just re- jump right into it. Okay. Should, Sean, should heroes kill people? This is the key question of Daredevil Season 2. Yes. Now streaming on Netflix, all 13 episodes. To recap, we enjoyed Daredevil Season 1 very much. Yes, tremendously. Best superhero costume ever. Yeah. Some of the best superhero casting ever. Mm-hmm. Definitely some of the best superhero action ever. Yeah. Some of the best like superhero supporting cast. One of the best villains ever. Yes. And we thought it ended kind of limply, but oh well. Yeah, TV and, shows do that a lot. Yeah, and oh well. It's kind of that left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth, but you go back and most of Daredevil season one is great. Yeah. And now we have season two, no more Wilson Fisk. Well, maybe. Or is there? Is there? Mm-hmm. We're going to get into spoilers, so yeah. if you don't want to listen, you can turn this off. I think we've given you enough other stuff. Hey, um, go watch Daredevil Season 2. That's the non-spoiler thing. It's like... Yeah, it's if, great. It's great. It's just fucking great. Yeah. Um, so, Wilson Fisk is out of the picture, at least at the beginning. We have John Bernthal as the Punisher, Elodie Young as Elektra. We have the returning cast, although... You realize how little of the cast actually returns, because season one had a bunch of people who are not in season yeah. two. It's kind of funny. Season one had much longer credits at the beginning yeah. for the cast. Um, so you have there was a bit of a death toll near the end of Daredevil season one. There definitely was. Yeah. And uh, so you have all of that. You come back. 
It's been, I don't know, what is it, like a couple of years? Yeah, since? a year or two. Yeah, I think year like or two. Matt Murdock has been on the street doing his Daredevil thing. He's having, he's, he's having a pretty good time just yep. like lawyering it up. Like the firm is doing really good. It's like everyone's just basically kind of happy. And then a dude shows up that just shoots up the entire Irish mob in one night and shit goes sour. Yeah. All right. So let's start with some overall thoughts. Yeah. You gave some thoughts a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So I'll give my overall take. Okay. Uh, And again, I binged the whole thing in 24 hours. That was both because I really enjoyed it and that was on a Friday night and I thought we were going to be podcasting on Sunday so I wanted to rush. And then it was like, we'll do it Tuesday. I'm like, it's good. I'm going to finish it. Yeah. So anyway, um, I I think Daredevil Season 2 is in some ways much more flawed than Season 1. And I think in some ways it's much more accomplished. It's kind yeah. of an interesting follow-up season. It's got new showrunners. Uh, the first season was Drew Goddard and then Stephen DeKnight. And Stephen DeKnight left and now it is... Um, I forget the names of the new showrunners. Yeah, but I don't remember they, they were on the staff in season one. Yeah. And um, you can kind of tell some of that. I think they made some good changes from what the show did in the first year. Um, I think some of the improvements include just... There is a sense of thematic focus to this one that is... Until the last couple episodes, rock solid yeah. and so interesting in that the most interesting part of Daredevil Season 1 is that it had this super strong moral foundation. It was about the morality of vigilantism and heroism and being a lawyer and all these different things, what it means to be a hero, to save the city, that kind of dialogue between Wilson Fisk and Daredevil, yeah. all of that being so interesting. And I feel like they doubled down on all of that, especially when they bring in the Punisher. And the idea is, all right, you have this guy who has kind of taken Daredevil as an example and gone to the full extreme of that. And what does that mean when Daredevil encounters that person and I think so much of that is so fascinating. They do such a great job with so much of it. All the things season one did well, that's back. Charlie Cox is so good. And I yeah. think kind of underrated in how we talk about it. He is really fucking good. Yeah, definitely. Deborah Ann Wall and um, Eldon Henson yeah. as um, Karen and Foggy are so great as the supporting players. That core yeah. trio, I think, is better used here than it was in season one. I agree, yeah. Um, John Bernthal is a phenomenal addition as the Punisher. Yeah, great. Elodie Young is an addition as Electra. We'll talk about that. Sure, yeah. And I think they made a smart decision where those first four episodes are an arc. The next four are kind of an arc. They do these kind of arcs. And I do think the season peaks very strongly with the first four episodes. I don't think it ever gets to that level again. Yeah, and, I basically agree with that. And I will say, I tweeted this and I completely agree. I still feel that way. Episodes three and four of this season of Daredevil might be my favorite things to ever come out of the MCU. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sure. They yeah. are fucking phenomenal. Really and good. we'll get into that. Um, but throughout the I mean, throughout the season, they upped their ante on the action sequences, on the cinematography, on some of the music. I just think they took a lot of it up to the next level. And then it falls apart so fucking hard for me in those last couple episodes, particularly the finale, which I again think is the weakest episode of the season. And this one particularly just I thought kind of awful and really they had all these stories that I was kept kept waiting to come together. And they didn't in a way that was particularly aggressive this season. And I especially think there were just some things in the finale that I... It felt like the ending to a different season of a show. And I don't know if they really understood what they had in Daredevil and Elektra and some of those other characters with what they did with them in the finale. But up to that point, I think there's a lot of great stuff to love here. And particularly just if all this season gave us was this version of The Punisher, that would be enough. Yeah. They gave us a lot more. So that's my overall thoughts. Okay, yeah, I don't think I dislike the end of the season as much as you, although I would agree that it's the weakest part of the season. But, like, it's... I still I still liked it. Like, I didn't think... I certainly wouldn't call it awful. I hated that finale. I just thought, 
because I'll, can I just I will get into it now and then maybe sure, yeah. we can get into the positive things more yeah. because most of what I have to say about the season is positive. But so this season is narratively much more ambitious than season one. Yeah, because season one it's pretty simple. You have Wilson Fisk and everything Daredevil does either directly or indirectly relates to Wilson Fisk's yeah. quest. And I think that was a good choice in season one. I thought the finale in that season really was just a little rushed and imperfect. Mm-hmm. But not like it was the right ending to that season because the ending is he becomes Daredevil and beats Wilson Fisk. Yeah. This season it's like okay, well we can't do that again. We can't just have a central antagonist because how are you going to live up to Vincent D'Onofrio? Yeah. And I totally understand that. So what they did is we're going to have the Punisher who is antagonistic but not the antagonist. Yeah. And you have Elektra who is antagonistic but not the antagonist. Yeah. And you have some other groups going on, but what it ultimately comes down to, and it gets very convoluted, and it, sometimes I think it's convoluted in a good way and sometimes in a bad way. Yeah. Um, but overall, you have this struggle where basically um, there's the side where Daredevil is hanging out with Elektra, and she represents her enemies are the Hand. Yes. And so you have that fight. And on the Punisher side, you have this drug dealer known as the, the Blacksmith, Black. and you have that side, and there's some big conspiracy going on. And I kept waiting for those two sides to sometime in the season intersect for like a second, and they don't. And it's really bizarre to me in those last two episodes that you have the end of the Punisher's arc. And I actually, that second to last episode, both sides of it are phenomenal. Yeah. But it's really awkward because, like, they're not talking. They're not in conversation with one another. Like, the end of the Punisher's arc needed to involve Daredevil in some way. And it doesn't because the episode before that is Daredevil offering to help the Punisher kill someone. Right, and I don't yeah. feel like they really... Followed up on that. That's a big thing for Daredevil to say, and I think it was a good move that felt organic for Daredevil to finally reach that point where he doesn't know what to say anymore. But past that, that's his last interaction with the Punisher, except when the Punisher somehow knows to come in at the end of the finale and shoot a dude, and somehow Daredevil's okay with that. Um, So I thought that was kind of weird, even though, again, those scenes are very good. But then you have Daredevil working with the Hand, and at a certain point, because there doesn't seem to be any relationship between the Hand and the drug dealers, even though there's some conspiracy that we never figured out where it came from, because someone... Where what came from? The conspiracy of, like, shooting the DA and all that stuff. Like, who did that? If it's not the Punisher, someone... I thought, was it, was, I thought it was, like, Clancy Brown, like, the blacksmith in his stuff. I thought he was they doing did, all this. Okay. They didn't make that all that explicit. Yeah. Because, again, I expected it to have something to do with the Hand, because you have these two villainous organizations working at the same time. And Matt keeps going further and further off on his own show. And I thought that was okay, because that's kind of the theme of the season, is that Matt is tearing his life apart in his pursuit of being Daredevil. But at no point does he really have to rectify with that this year, because he just goes further and further off into his own thing and never has to kind of come back into the main story, which felt like it was the Punisher stuff. And so then you get to that finale, and the Punisher stuff is already done. So the Punisher barely works into it, even though he was the main thematic thrust of the season. He is the mirror image for Matt. And then, for some reason, the finale is all about Matt and Electra's relationship, even though at no point do you believe that is a, like, I love you forever kind of thing. The scene where Matt, like, proclaims his love for Electra and says, the only thing that excites me more than this city is you, I will leave New York for you, they did not earn that. That is... The one thing you know about Matt Murdock is that he will bleed and die for New York City, and he's offering to go off and travel the world with Elektra. Why? What did we see that justified that? It's And it's also just, you know she's going to die at that point, yeah. because that's the only reason you write that scene. You're not actually going to have him leave New York and go adventuring with this woman we kind of barely know on the show. Yeah. And so, there's kind of some cool fight choreography at the end, but even that did not... I just didn't think... I thought it was kind of empty. He beats the hand. We never really know what their villainous plot was. Um, 
Okay, it's like there was really by the end, it's like there were stakes, but I wasn't sure what they were, right? Because I just kept waiting for some kind of intersection where all the different plot strands would come together, and they ultimately remained separate all the way to the end. And I think once all the plot stuff was dealt with, the last few moments of the finale are very good, ending on Daredevil revealing himself to Karen is the perfect note to end the season on. Yeah. But because he and I mean he and Karen don't exchange dialogue in like the last four episodes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a problem. There needed to be something. Like he really gets off on his own show because that hand stuff, the stuff with Stick, that does not involve any other character on the show. It's him, Electra, and Stick, and that is it. Yeah. Like Karen gets kidnapped in the finale. But other, but like, it's not really a meaningful character intersection. Yeah. So that was just, I thought, all the stuff leading up to that, I like a lot of the hand stuff this season. I think visually they did a great job with those villains. Yeah. I think they made way better use of Scott Glenn this year as Stick than they did in the first year. Yeah, because he was like in that like one episode in season one. And I love that episode, yeah. but I think they really made him into a character this year. I love that. I liked Electra up to that point in the role they had given her, which is not as Matt's one true love interest, yeah. but as this woman who is, represents... She is, uh, the, you know, it's the angel and devil on his shoulder, but they're kind of both devils as the Punisher and yeah. Electra. And I think that's interesting kind of going back and forth. But I kind of was waiting for the finale when all of that comes together and he has to kind of find the better side of himself within both of them. But that's not it at all. Like, it yeah. felt like they were building meticulously all these themes and then kind of forgot about it in the end. Yeah, so, for me, I guess my where I come at with the season finale is that I guess I didn't actually expect that stuff to really resolve. Like, I really didn't expect the Matt stuff to, and the Punisher stuff to come back together at the end of the season. Like, it really felt like, like, when those stories had split, like, they, it kind of felt like they had split for good until, like, obviously, season three is going to have to resolve that stuff. Like, that's going to be the, the thing for season three is going to have to be Matt finding a new equilibrium, equilibrium in his life with Karen and Foggy and everyone else when he's gone so far down the daredevil path and he's dedicated so much to that. And I think he's wrong in doing so. And like, I think like that Electra stuff, I don't see that as her being his one true love. I see that as him making a huge mistake in the last episode of like he's and that's why I think like that Karen thing is really important at the end is like the, the tip to like, this is where we're going the next season. Like, I don't think I think there's a stuff about the season finale that they could have done better. And I do wish that like, they had plotted the season in such a way to make those themes converge in a like very meaningful way at the end. But I think the way that they did do it, I don't have a huge problem with. Like, it, 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 like I just feel like they leave a lot of work for season three to do, which is which, a good thing and a bad thing, I guess. And I never like when shows do that. Like yeah. you can, it's okay if you leave plot stuff unresolved, but I want the themes to end. Like a great example for me is Breaking Bad season three, which ends on a complete cliffhanger. Yeah. Which is where it's kind of the war with Gus Fring escalates at that moment. But the theme of that season, which is Walter White deciding to become the villain he's threatened to be, yeah. that's the theme of that season, and that's where you end. And that's a thematic resolution. And I felt like we didn't really get that here. I see the skeleton of what they wanted to do. Like, I do totally see the point of the electric stuff. Obviously, it's that he's making a mistake. Yeah. But I just thought, the, like, what he that scene where he's with her before they run out onto the roof and have their big climactic fight, I don't know what they were even talking about. It was so out of left field. Even for the mistakes Matt Murdock was making that year, I did not understand what he was talking about. They did not sell that anywhere near enough for me to believe that this is a particular mistake he would make. I don't know. I think there's something about... And maybe it's because the Electra storyline in this is so much the Black Cat storyline from Spider-Man that, like, to me, there is something about that quality in Matt where it's like, 
because Karen doesn't know that he's Daredevil, that's like, he needs to be Daredevil so bad for himself. And Elektra is the only person in him in his life that knows that he's Daredevil and can, like, be with him as Daredevil in the way that, like, Foggy knows that he's Daredevil. But, like, the whole thing about this season is Foggy not being able to accept that part about Matt. And, like, that being what destroys their friendship is that Matt can't let go of the Daredevil stuff. And Foggy can't accept that because he thinks it's a mistake. And he's basically right about it being a mistake for, for Matt. And yeah. so I guess, like, that... Well, I, I think it could have been better. I think the Electra stuff overall is the weaker part of the season, especially compared to the Punisher stuff, which is amazing. I do think it worked well enough for me to for me to like look past a lot of the flaws in it. And I get it. I liked the Electra stuff in the middle of the season. Yeah. Like when you say, I, I totally agree, it's the Black Cat from Spider-Man where he's being very distracted by her. And I think that middle part where his life is just disintegrating without him noticing it, yeah. that's great. I mean, and, and the stuff where the Punisher's trial is going on at the same time, that is a great bit of dual storytelling. Yeah. I just thought... It gets muddier and muddier and then just kind of ends muddy to me. And it didn't... There are so many moments this season that just left me breathless and punched in the gut and all yeah. of that. And the finale left me kind of scratching my head on what exactly they were trying to say. Because I... Yeah, I guess for me, like, I think it's just like... Because I feel like we had the exact same conversation for Daredevil Season 1. That, like, I think I just don't expect that from TV shows. It's just like... Because it's great when TV shows do do it. But I feel like serialized storytelling is so much about, like, the journey and, like, the end, in my experience, is almost never good. And maybe this is also coming from me spending, like, four years reading a bunch of Victorian literature where the ending of every Victorian book is always terrible. It's like those were all originally serialized, that there is something about that, like, if it comes together at the end, that's fantastic, but I guess I personally don't really need that. I just, I also feel like I've grown up in an era of TV where we get a lot of that, where I feel like the season has become a really good form of storytelling. Sure. And, you know, we had, I mean, my God, my top ten list last year was just one knockout after another of a full experience that was brilliant, you know, culminating in that Doctor Who season, which did yeah. it perfectly. And that's, that's not a bar I'm expecting anyone else to reach, but, yeah. you know. Like, and ultimately, it's the, my biggest disappointment, though, with that, and it's something that I really hope they learn from their mistakes with Daredevil Season 3, is I don't need or want this show to be trying to do the overarching stories it's doing. Right. I would really love if Season 3 was a series of either one-off episodes or smaller story arcs where it's not about some overall big bad or something, but, like, the character stuff carries through. I, I don't need it to be as intensely serialized as it is, and I think sometimes it stifles what the show does so well because I think the character stuff could go through episode to episode in a way that would almost be better served if maybe you saw Matt have to encounter a couple more one-off villains. Um, right. Because already I like that this season feels a little more varied and that yeah, you start yeah. with the Punisher and the Irish mob and you move on to these other things and there's more about the trial versus what she's doing with Elektra and all of that. And it feels like there's more phases. I feel like they could make it even more kind of piecemeal next year and it might be stronger. That's one of the problems, I think, honestly, with the Netflix model is it doesn't encourage that. I mean, that was a huge problem with Jessica Jones. Yeah, yeah. Jessica Jones needed to be either half as long as it was or cut out six of the story arc episodes and do individual Jessica does other things Yeah, episodes. like, like standalone cases, basically. Right, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my thought on that. But... Again, what this season does well, it does so extraordinarily well when I start to think about it. It's just, it's almost hard to believe some of what they pulled off this year. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, I want to talk, like, before we get into more details, a little bit about that, the structure of season two and how that compares to season one. Because that's one of my favorite things about it, 
is that, as you said, they couldn't, after uh, doing the Kingpin stuff for season one, just do that again of, like, throw in Bullseye or some other, like, very, like, recognizable Daredevil villain and have that be, like, the whole season is building up a conflict between the two of them and then resolve that conflict at the very end. And instead, for this season, it felt like they went for, like, if you're comparing it to, like, the comic book storytelling style, it feels like where season one was one really huge, like, trade paperback, season two is, like, three or four smaller trade paperback collections of, like, five issues or like like this like four episodes five episodes of like this is like the punisher one and that like th- like a lot of the things that happen like still continue because it's all ultimately a fully serialized format but we are packaging it into smaller story arcs of like the punisher like is on the loose it's like the punisher trial with electra coming in and then it is near the end like you get some like the when kingpin comes back in like you get like a nice little two episode thing and then you get like the hand stuff is where it gets muddy and i'll definitely agree with your word choice there but yeah i i think it was a really smart of them to do that to like just make season two feels structurally completely different from season one and i just hope they do even more of that next yeah, year that's what I i'm agree, saying yeah. because like that's where the season falls apart for me is those last like three episodes where they try to make it feel more like this was a cohesive whole and sure. the hand was our villain but there's no central villain with the hand. No, yeah. You don't... I. What were their motivations? I don't know. They kind of Make wanted... immortal people. I guess. But why Probably. are they a threat? I don't know. They're they're ninjas, I guess. It's the so war. It, it's just... Like, you compare that to yeah. Wilson Fisk where, like, you... That's where, it, like, it suffers by comparison is when yeah. they try to make it, like, here's the big bad final confrontation. It's like, you weren't doing that before for a reason. Yeah, So... Yeah. But no, I mean, you're right. Like, And I do think you can watch those first four, which is the Punisher arc, on their own, and they are so powerful. And I can totally see a version of season two where they could have just done Punisher for 13 episodes yeah. and pushed that off. And I'm so glad they didn't because those four, they didn't waste a second. They yeah, just yeah. tell the story in the amount of time it takes, and it's perfect. Those first four episodes, and especially three and four, are phenomenal. Yes. I mean... The premiere involves the violent slaughter of the entire Irish mob yeah. and ends with Daredevil getting shot in the head. Mm-hmm. As and we start to a season, that's pretty great. Yeah, and as an introduction to the Punisher, like you couldn't ask for anything better. Like no. it is, like from minute one, it's like holy shit! Like they're they doing are, it. They are doing this character. Yeah, I mean, so you just want to jump in and talk about the Punisher a little bit? Yeah, I think we need to because it's like to me, he is the most standout thing about this season. This is, like, not to say that, like, Daredevil and his cast are not interesting on their own, but, like, the Punisher is so... It's, it feel like, feels like such a revelation to me, personally, because the Punisher is a character I've never loved that much, and this version of the character, I feel like, makes him in such a way that I now understand why people are Punisher fans. It's like, this version of the character is so good, and they cherry-pick the best parts of him so well, and John Bernthal's performance is so amazing that it's, like... And I, when I think about this season, I kind of think about him. Absolutely, but I want to preface it with, you know, one of the criticisms I've heard of season two is that the Punisher is so good and the other characters have such main stuff going on that, you know, Matt gets lost in the shuffle or Daredevil isn't the main character anymore. And I disagree no, because yeah. I think, you know, the Punisher is a standout, but I think they're kind of using the superhero as anthology storytelling model this year, which is that part of why we have these superheroes isn't so that they can be the exclusive focus every time, but so yeah. you get other characters involved. You know, Batman is completely villain-centric, you know, if you look at that character, for instance. But within that, what does each villain do? They represent some part of your main character, and you can only have them because of that main character. Punisher works as well as he does here because of Daredevil. Yes. If you did not have the Season 1 Foundation, if you did not have Charlie Cox's performance, and if you did not have what they do with Matt Murdock this year, 
Punisher doesn't work. Yeah. And like, I still, after seeing this, I don't have really any interest in a Punisher spinoff series. I don't need that. But I think doing it here in the context of Daredevil was perfect because yeah. you put him in a context where that character is not, to me, fetishistic in the way he can be. Right. Um, is not just completely off-putting because it's within a larger moral framework that is really fascinating to explore. Yeah, and it is. And that's one of the things about how they use him that I think has made me sort of like, me personally as a Marvel Comics fan specifically, have a very different perspective now on the Punisher is that the Punisher to me is like always like he's his own character. Like he is the star of Punisher. Like that's his, he has his own book. It's like that's what he is. Whereas this, it's like he is a supporting character in the Daredevil show. So now everything about Punisher is juxtaposed with Daredevil, like naturally. And this version of that character exists alongside Daredevil. Whereas in the comics, like they cross over all the time because they exist in similar spheres. But Punisher is Punisher, Daredevil is Daredevil, and every once in a while they like intersect in their own comics. Whereas like this, they are interlinked in this season, like irreversibly. You know, absolutely. I mean. You know, so you start with that episode one, which is totally a setup episode, but a very good one. Yeah, because it's the first episode. You want right. it to be a setup episode. Yeah, and so you have the stuff with you have some of the stuff is where are we with Daredevil? You know, the, yeah. the firm, Daredevil has his life in balance momentarily, yeah. but then it goes off, and then I think season two starts to ask those big questions, which is well. If you create the Daredevil persona, what comes next? It's kind of the inverse of what the Dark Knight did, which is saying if you have Batman. In Gotham City, the villains are going to get crazy until the point where you have the Joker. Yeah. And the idea here is that if you have Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen, you're going to have other vigilantes to the point where someone is just going to go crazy and become like Frank Castle does. Yeah. And then the confrontation inevitably happens, end of, or start of episode three, where he's got Daredevil chained to the roof. Season three is this long, great dialogue between the two characters. On the side, you have Karen investigating his, his backstory. Yeah. And then season three ends with full episode on. Three. Episode three three, full on ends with maybe the best superhero action scene I've ever seen. Movie, TV, whatever. It's where they basically try to one-up what they did in season one with the hallway fight from episode two. And they one-up it good. Where Daredevil fights the entire fucking mob from the top story of a a building to the bottom story. And oh my god. Yeah. That was fucking incredible. Yeah, I, I actually like just rewatched this season before you came, or that episode. Now you have me saying it. Sorry. Uh, before you came over. Not the whole episode, but that, that fight scene at the end. Just because like, I knew we were going to talk about Daredevil Season 2, and it's been a couple of weeks since I saw it. And like I just wanted to watch that fight scene again. And yeah, you're right. Like It is... It's amazing, like kind of in every level, and but like not just in the the choreography is outstanding as like across this whole season, but this like that episode or that fight is really the the standout the standout one in just the same way that the episode two fight was in season one. But I like how they position this fight to very clearly be like not just like it's not just one upping it, but it's in conversation with that fight scene. I feel like, and there's a yes. lot of stuff in Daredevil season two that very subtly is calling back to things about season one. Where it's here, it's like you are the way that it's shot as a sort of faux one take. They have like cannot do this fight scene as an actual one take the way that the episode two one was. But well, episode two was a faux one take also. But yeah, but like that one like was a much better faux one take in terms of like this is like there's very clearly cuts, but they're like making it seem like a one take. And so like they're doing that, and it's like that just helps for like how they're filming the fight scene across the board. That's like when you have that attitude instead of the like super shaky cam. A billion edits at every single minute, the way that Batman v Superman filmed its fight scenes, like that just helps. But then also that filmic language 
really resonates with that the hallway fight scene from season one, and it makes it really made me think about how far Daredevil has come as a character to like where that that hallway fight scene was him and he takes out probably like six guys, maybe like eight guys, and it's like he is like practically dead at the end of that fight scene. He's he's really beat up at the end of this one too, but that one it's like the first really big fight scene you have for that character at all. And he's just like in his like black pajamas basically and it's he's almost dead by the end of it. And this one you have the scale of that fight scene is so much bigger of him going down the whole building. Down he's like got the, the chain yeah, he's arm. got the chain. He's like I love he has like that gun taped to his hand the entire time too. And the, which is unloaded. And and then he's going down like that hallway, fighting like probably like twice, maybe three times more guys. He gets to the end and he has to fight like three huge bruiser guys and like it takes them all out in like really spectacular fashion. And just everything about the choreography and the staging about that fight scene is like this is where Daredevil is now. Like he is he has his full armor on, he is a superhero now. He's not just a dude running around in his pajamas beating up thugs. Like it it gives you a really good reference point for how far that character has gone gone. And I feel like that was really smart about how they did that. Well just thematically, I mean episode two of season one, uh Cutman is what it's called. Yeah. And that's the one where you have the flashbacks to his father and this yeah. whole idea of his father was a guy who could never give up the fight. Until the day he yeah. he almost does, and then he doesn't, gets killed for it. Daredevil is much his father's son, and he's in there because he feels like this is what he has to do. Yeah. And he's going to save that kid no matter what. Here, it's more than that. It's yeah. not just his duty. He is taking Lee in that. I mean, he mm-hmm. smiles during that scene. He seems to have some kind of fun with it. He is pushing it as far as it he does because he can. Yeah. And within that, you know, he's trying to protect the Punisher so he can get the Punisher arrested. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like there is another level to this and you're realizing Daredevil has gone farther than maybe we recognized, than yeah. maybe he recognized. And, of course, that is in conversation with the episode that precedes the fight, which is all about the moral relativity between the Punisher yeah. and Daredevil. And this idea... This is not a new idea, the question of, you no. know, should a superhero kill? But the way... It's approached, particularly in that episode and episode four, the one that directly follows it, yeah. is so fascinating to me because you basically have Frank Castle and the way John Bernthal plays him lays it out in a way that is more bare and stark and obvious than I've ever seen, which is that Daredevil just says, you know, no, killing is wrong, killing is wrong. And, you know, you have that scene, which I think is adapted from a comic story where the Probably. Punisher tapes the gun to Daredevil's yeah. hand and sets up the scenario where he's going to have to shoot the guy. And,. What Punisher says is, what I'm making you do is the choice I make every time, which is that either I let this guy, I I arrest this guy, and he goes in jail, but he'll come back out and he'll keep killing people, or I kill this one guy and I save more. It's like, why do you have the moral high ground? And it makes Daredevil stop for a second, and it makes us stop for a second. Because they're actually, with that Punisher character, willing to go to a place where they really don't just ask the question, they interrogate it. Yeah. And it's really fascinating and moving and disturbing in the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is like with then, yeah, as you say, they transition into that fight scene where it's like Daredevil is not the plucky young hero he was. Or it's like, yeah, like, go get him. He's not the underdog. It is like he's got that fucking chain. He's like dressed up all in red. He's got horns on his head. And it's like, and he's taking dudes out. Like, it is no fucking joke. Like, that, that fight scene is... Incredible, and it also brings in like what I love. Now that I just want to mention it, now that I'm thinking about it, that it was in season one. It's still in season two, and I just love it that every single fight scene that Daredevil in is in ends with him just going like, "Oh, 
Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, fuck. It's like he's like blood stripping out of his mouth and his nose. And it's like he's panting and he's sweating. He's just bending over because he just beat up like 20 guys with like this, all this like really acrobatic stuff he's doing. He's taken like 50 punches to the head. It's like every single fight scene, especially the like the last fight scene of the show. He just is like, oh, 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 oh. And it's like he's so out of breath. And I feel like you never see that. You never get that side because it's like. Daredevil does not walk away from any of the fight scenes. See, like cool, calm, collected. Like I really like awesome dude. He like ends every fight scene like like bending over, just like oh my god, that was a that was a thing that I just did. Holy shit! I like I'm gonna feel that in the morning. Absolutely, and I mean it, it underscores one of the things I love about this whole show and this season in particular. But like, as soon as I started season two, I was brought back to remembering. Oh, right, I really loved this show last year. Yeah, Daredevil, as played by Charlie Cox, with this supporting cast, is one of my favorite live action superheroes. Yeah, top five easily, and it's because they really just turn into that how unique he is as a hero, which he's very unique. He's a blind guy. I mean, yeah. you can't turn away from that, and I feel like they do such a good job with that. This season in particular of pushing things in that way where the st- it's stylistic but also grounded in who the character is. Yeah. I love the new costume. Yes. Yeah. Like, especially when yeah when he gets like the new new costume. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean from episode one onwards it is yeah. so much. The one they introduced in the season one finale is fine but it wasn't all that interesting. Yeah. But from right off the bat it feels like actually a very natural evolution of what he had in the, the black pajamas, as you say. Yeah. It feels like the full version of that, and it just looks and moves so well in those fucking yeah. fight scenes. And as you say, you know, he he acts like a man. He, he breathes at the end of those because yeah. he's he has to. He's a human being. And also, like, I love that they still have never resorted to doing, like, blind vision on the show. Yeah, yeah. They did that one brief glimpse in episode five last year, and then they've never done it again. And you don't need it. It's so much more interesting if yeah. he is legitimately blind, he just doesn't need sight. Yeah. That's the whole idea. Mm-hmm. And I like that they play with that a little bit this season where, like, because of the head injury, sometimes he can't hear. Mm-hmm. Then the hand exploits that. And that, oh, right, if he were to lose those other senses, he's kind of lost. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I feel like all the fight scenes are kind of built around that. You can see the logic of how this guy who doesn't have sight but has these other senses would fight in a very specific way yeah and it is something where you know i made fun of last ep- uh, episode on the podcast the people who always like love batman are always like oh he's batman's great because he's just a dude and i made fun of that because it's like he's not just a dude he's a fictional character it's like it doesn't matter what his superpowers are on like the dc wikipedia page it's like he has superpowers in those stories in like batman v superman he is a superhero with what he does and like daredevil is a really good example of no daredevil is just a dude it's funny because he does actually technically have superpowers but in those fight scenes he's not captain america he's not superman he's not spider-man he's like really athletic and highly trained and he has like sharpened senses and that's it so and like and if you are just a dude and you are in a fight with six guys like that takes a really heavy toll on you. And in most, in like some Batman stories, they do that. But in most Batman stories, especially ones that glorify him, he walks away from every fight scene just being like the coolest dude. It's like nothing has phased him. He's just taking everyone out. And that's fine. But it's like, if you want something that does have that sense of realism, I think Daredevil is a great example. And like, not just a great example, but almost like the only example I've ever seen that in the genre that goes that far with it. Absolutely. And 
if anything, I liked the fourth episode even more because it's the fallout from that where, again, as he always does, this is what defines Daredevil to me is that no matter how fucking much he's beat up, he gets back up. Yeah. Or beat down, he gets back up. And it's like, all right, Frank Castle got away. I got to deal with this shit. Yeah. And he goes And there's one crazy Irish motherfucker that is going to make that a lot more difficult. That's a great opening to that episode. Oh, that funeral? Yes, that funeral and that crazy Irish motherfucker, as you say, and then all the shit Frank Castle goes through in that episode where... And I I will say I've heard some complaints from some people I follow on Twitter and stuff that the season got too extreme too fast for them and they kind of fell off. And I get that. It it is very violent. It's very extreme. And it's it's Punisher. Like, it needs to be violent. Like, that's the thing. That's what it's asking, basically. Well, and if it's not your cup of tea, that's fine. But I also like that the show is what it is and doesn't make apologies for it and goes with it. Like, because if your whole thing is one of our heroes... Beats people up and the other one kills them. Like you need to be have the guy who kills people. That needs to be violent because yes. like killing people is violent. Absolutely, and I think one of the things this season does very well with both characters as mirror images of another is the ramifications of their actions. Yeah, Daredevil, his life is kind of gone by the end of this season. Yeah, and Punisher, they they don't try to make some kind of. I mean, later on it gets a little convoluted because he does technically break out of prison. Right, but yeah. up until that point, it's like, no, this guy couldn't survive in the world for years on end. Right, he yeah. starts his killing spree, and a week later he's in prison as he fucking should be. Yeah, but like, what would happen if he actually did that to the mob? Yeah, they would tie him to a chair and put a fucking drill through his foot. Yeah, like this is what would happen to this mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. And I think they're they're very smart to turn into that particular skid. You have to do that with that character. And then I like that Daredevil is kind of really trying to rescue his enemy in that episode. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic. While Frank Castle has his own plan going on because he... That's the other interesting thing is that he would be willing to put himself through excruciating pain just to get to the people who hurt him. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it is that like aspect of Daredevil that like he has to... As you say, he has to rescue his enemy. But that is in that like conversation about... Do you kill people or do you not? Like, that is the thing that sets Daredevil apart is that he's trying, like, no matter what he's doing, he's trying to help people. And killing someone is, like, that might help someone, but it doesn't help everybody. And it's, like, like putting, like, the hurt on a guy who's on, like, the Punisher, that that can be helpful to the Punisher. Like, you can argue that it's, like, hey, like, if I, like, we can get you some help, we can, like get you a psychiatrist it's like we can send you to a mental hospital we can figure out something that's going on with you like if I put you in the ground that doesn't help you and so like him part of his thing with the Punisher is that like if the Daredevil was the Punisher Punisher would be dead like if the Daredevil had that code you would never be able to have any of those stories because it's like you just go in and kill everyone but trying to be a good person and like trying to help everyone that you may end up hurting people overall in like some sort of like net moral cost but that is that aspect that that feels so noble of him. Like, yeah, it's like he's if the Punisher has been captured and is being tortured, it's like he's not just going to let the Punisher die. Like he needs to go help him, like to wreak out his own like Daredevil's own sense of personal justice. But then also, like to help people, which is what his whole like mission is. Yeah, and just I mean, this whole episode really is Daredevil really starting to reckon with what is his role in the world. You yeah. feel how shaken he is by all of that, and I love it. But then where this episode climaxes is they meet at the graveyard yeah. and you have John Bernthal's monologue. 
and uh, that's the best scene of the season, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really long. I forget how long that monologue is, but it feels like it's 15 minutes or something, yeah. where he basically, he doesn't come out and say his backstory, and that's what I love. You really kind of piece more of that together later, but you get all the essential pieces as he kind of rambles about his pain yeah. and what's going on, and Daredevil at no point forgives him, nor should he, nor should we, yeah. but you understand him in a way that is so tough to fathom like yeah. emotionally because these things happen to this guy these things happen in the real world unfortunately and in some ways what he's done is the only logical response to that yeah you know and so it's in some ways yes it is insanity in some ways it's not and that what's that's what makes it so scary yeah and it is something where it's like in this season, like you learn, John Bernthal can monologue like a motherfucker because he has several of those. Things, like with like in episode three on the rooftop, it's like he is like a lot more active in that conversation than, than Daredevil is because he's the party that really has to justify himself. And then he has like that tombstone scene, and there's other scenes later on. But yeah, like you, and and it's like that's the moment I feel like really in episode four there at that with his monologue is when I realize like how much like. I really do care about that character that it's like, and it's that thing of like, I've never really cared about Punisher before. And it's like, and it's always his backstory is like the most cliche backstory. Like his death wish. It's like, Hey, like my family was killed and by criminals. And so I'm going to kill criminals. It's like, it's not, not just my family. It's like very specifically, it's his wife and it's his daughter. In this version, he also has a son. I think in a lot of versions, he has a son, but like, it is like white male guy, like important female family members die he goes on a vengeance crusade. Like how many video games and like TV shows and movies have you seen that has that basic setup? But this is like, it is like, yeah, it's a cliche setup, but you really get into the meat of that. And you, it's like, and it doesn't matter how cliche the setup or the idea is like when you get into what makes what made that thing a cliche in the first place, that it's like, that's a really like real visceral pain and a fear that's like of your family being taken away from you. And when that character can express that in that way, that doesn't feel like them monologuing. That just feels like this guy who's in tremendous pain just trying to talk. Like, that is incredibly effective. And it's, it's something that, like, I've read... I've, I haven't read, like, bunches of Punisher comics, but I've given it a try over the years. And it's like, it's never quite gotten to me because it's like, I've just never really bought into that side of the character. I've never bought into the idea of Frank Castle... The guy who had the family. He's always just the guy who lost the family. And this, I feel like, yeah, this is a guy who had that thing. He has, it's not just that it's gone and he's angry about it. It's that, like, he had this thing and it has, and it's lost now and he can and never have it. And it's raw. It's yeah. very raw for him. I mean, what makes that monologue brilliant is that it's mostly not at all about the trauma. It's about the yeah. moments before it. He talks about the war and coming home and his daughter and this beautiful moment he shared with his daughter and tears are willing in his eyes and probably the viewer's eyes long before he gets to the punchline of all that. Yeah. Um, but when he does, it's, you know, he's talking about all of this literally, you know, he's talking about having his daughter's, you know, guts in his hands and these things. And it's graphic, but what's more graphic almost is the emotional honesty of what comes before it, yeah. of what that meant to him. And they just, they put the weight in places that these cliches often don't. You know yeah. what I mean? So... Yeah, just tremendously powerful. And as a climax to that four-episode arc where it's all about Daredevil kind of trying to understand the Punisher, trying to understand himself, you come to this moment of empathy, and it hits very hard. Yeah. Even though 
you know, he should be behind bars. <laughs> he should have yeah, a fucking psychiatrist. Yeah. He should not be on the streets. That's kind of, it's a really fascinating line for you as the viewer to walk to. Yeah. Um, and he does get behind bars. Daredevil basically promises to give this all up. And that's an interesting point to be four episodes in. Yeah. Because, of course, he's not going to do that. No. And why is he not going to do that? It's because, well, weirdly enough, the Punisher has a clearer sense of himself than Daredevil does. Yeah. And that's kind of, that kicks off this existential arc where he comes home end of episode four, Elektra's there, and then the rest of the season is kind of, the, the chaos starts unraveling, yeah. you know? And we start with this case, Matt wants to take the Frank Castle case, Foggy is understandably horrified by that, yeah. and Karen, being Karen, just wants to help the world yeah. and all this, these things, and I, for, I think it's in episode five when Matt and Karen start dating, right? Around there, like I don't remember specifically. Those scenes are phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Holy crap! They have a like, lot of chemistry. It's pretty clear. Like if you look at season one, when Drew Goddard was writing those first few episodes, he probably intended to do a more foggy Karen thing. Yeah, which is I think more true to verse certain comic versions. If I'm I think saying. I think it's gone back and forth. It's gone back and like, forth. Okay. Karen's comic book history is very convoluted. And okay. I don't know all of it, but it's clear that. While she and Eldon Henson have very good chemistry, it's more of a friend chemistry. Yeah. Charlie Cox and Deborah Ann Wall have a romantic chemistry. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad that they really took advantage of that. And I think those scenes are so great. And it, it they're powerful on so many levels because you see Matt making this concerted effort to be the best version of himself. Yeah. You see he can do it. Like, it's not a pipe dream. He can be that person. Yeah. And yet, the, the call of Daredevil is there. And of course, this is going to fall apart, ultimately. And fall apart, it does. But I just think that entire side of that arc, I really, really love. Yeah, and I really love how it sort of climaxes in them, in his apartment that one night, like, working on the Punisher case together, and them having that conversation where she doesn't know whether or not, like, the Punisher, what the Punisher's doing is right, and, like, whether or not, like, the people he kills deserves to be killed and stuff like that. And it is that, like, sense of, like, the reason why it can't work is because... Matt is just lying to her the entire time. And it's like the entire time they're having that argument, you can just feel like Charlie Cox and the Matt Murdock characters. Why is it? It's like, I'm fucking Daredevil. Like, I, I feel like I know a bit what, like, what I'm talking about here. But it's like he can't, he can't be honest with her when they're like having that really serious discussion. It's like they're fine when they're just flirting. Like, they're really, it's like yeah. not a big deal there. But like when the, they're having like this really honest moment together with people is when it falls apart with Matt because he can't bring himself to share that side of himself with Karen, you know? Yes. And I, you know, this middle section of the season is one of the busier sections of the season. Yeah. And yet I really like it where you have the trial going on. You have his journeys with Electra. You have him dating Karen. Stick comes back into the picture at a certain point. And yet I think all of that plays off one another rather beautifully honest because like what John Bernthal gets to do in this middle stretch is really interesting because yeah. he's not active. He's lying in a hospital bed or being in court. And it's really about him and Karen and Foggy more than it is him and Matt. Yeah. But him and Matt still have a dialogue going on even though they barely talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? because because with Electra coming into his life raises even more questions about like the extent of his force and like what he's allowed to do. Absolutely. Um, what else am I going to say here? I mean, I also think... In season one of my main complaints with the first season of the show is that you have that great core of Foggy, Karen, Matt. Yeah. It's as good as it could be. And yet it's really only the first couple episodes of that season where they feel like a unit. They quickly kind of go their separate ways that season. Yeah. This year it feels like until the last couple episodes, those are the three main characters. They yeah. generally interact with one another. You have a lot of stuff between them. It doesn't feel like 
anyone's really off on their own show. Karen, once again, has a lot of her own investigations, but it always comes back to the point of the main group. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like she's kind of... It's felt a lot like in season one, like her and Ben Urich were on a spinoff that was closely related, but sure, not yeah. quite the same show. I don't, didn't get that a lot. A little bit in the last couple episodes this year, but not in that middle stretch. It all felt very cohesive in yeah. a way that I enjoyed. And I really like, I feel like here we should talk a little bit about Foggy because we haven't talked about him He's almost so at great. all. He's so good. And like, I've seen like some criticism online, and this was true of season one as well, but like with season two, it's it's gotten on my nerves even more of people like criticizing Foggy and calling him like, and I, every fucking show has this character. It's the Skylar White from Breaking Bad of like people who like, there's this one character that is not all in on whatever the main character is doing, who is a close person to that main character's wife or life. And then, so everyone on the internet just like dumps on that character as being the wet blanket. It's like, no. I always, I, it's like, no, like, it's like, I, sometimes this character is meant to frustrate you, but also like, most of the time, Foggy is 100% right, and Matt is the person you're supposed to be like, Matt, stop fucking shit up. Like, Foggy is the, like, Foggy is, like, the best person in the show. Like, he is the most good person Absolutely. in the entire show. He's the moral center. Yeah. And I like the Skylar White comparison because in TV, recent TV history, she became the epicenter of, because it's usually a female character, this kind of ugly yeah. sexism aimed at characters in these, you know, male anti-hero dramas. I like that it is a male character in this show, yeah. but it's the same effect. And yeah. you see, it's this weird thing where people just want to assume the protagonist is always right. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case here at all. And, and that would make the show so dull. Like, yeah. like, Foggy is so important because he shows... Because it's like... Because what actually, like, the real dichotomy of most of the show is that, like, Punisher's on one side and he's off, like, fucking shooting people. And then on the other side you have Foggy and he's in the court, like, trying to find justice through, like legal means and trying to work within the system to find the best possible means and Matt is the one in the middle pulled between those two extremes and it's like that's the actual tension for like the, especially that middle part of the show is it's like Foggy is the angel and the Punisher is the devil slash like Electra is also on that side it's like Foggy is the good guy in that whole scenario and it's really frustrating to me when people like it's just like it's okay to like sometimes be frustrated with that character if you're really like in with like the protagonist and you're really like sort of relating to the protagonist heavily. Like it's fine to be frustrated with Foggy or fine to be frustrated with Skylar White from Breaking Bad. But I think when you take that as being like, I hate this character, you're totally missing why the writing in that show is really good. Like you can be frustrated with a character and still be like, this character is amazing. Like this character is so well written and so well performed because it's like they're, they're functioning in this show at like the absolute peak of what they need to be doing, and that to me is exactly what Foggy is in this show. Absolutely, and if anything, I thought they could have done more with Foggy this year. Yeah, like, yeah, he's, he's the one I think gets most shafted by the end of like when yes. he gets really Foggy. But I mean, the the middle portion with him, he really shines because yeah. he's on a path where he can only lose. There is no winning in what Foggy is trying to do, yeah. and that's what's interesting is that Punisher has a worldview where he thinks he can win. Daredevil has a worldview where he thinks he can quote unquote win. Yeah, even if Foggy gets Frank Castle off in some way. There's no victory in that. Yeah, What's, yeah. You know, there's no way where that becomes perfect, and yet it is the right thing to do, which is that it probably is good to defend Frank Castle because he doesn't just outright deserve the worst of the worst. Yeah, he, he does deserve some kind of help, but he also should be in jail. Like, yes, yeah, no, like you can't just let him out on the streets, but you also shouldn't be like finding legal loopholes to get him executed. Right. So yeah. it's it's a very interesting arc for Foggy, I think. 
and you understand his frustration with Daredevil. Because I think we're supposed to get frustrated. And I've seen that complaint too. And I do understand this one because you want to be able to like your protagonist. Yeah. And Matt is unlikable for large swaths of this season. And if it weren't for Charlie Cox being very charismatic, yeah. there would be a lot of this that would be hard to get through. And I get that. I found it compelling personally yeah, because I think you're really challenging this character. And I think because we have a bedrock of love for the guy, we want him to be his best self. And he's often being heroic but his worst self in a weird way. Yeah. And it's an interesting kind of spiral for the character, I think. Yeah. Especially in that middle stretch where he keeps going further and further into Daredevil and neglecting what is his higher calling, which is a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. And it was really funny because I was watching the show with my dad, and he's a lawyer. And so, like, in this middle stretch where, like, a lot of the drama of the show is about Matt, like fucking up and like not preparing his speech that he has to give in court the next day and instead he's off like being with Electra and when I was talking with my dad and he was saying it's like this part I, it's hard for me to watch the show right now because I'm so stressed out about him not having his opening statement prepared like I can't watch this scene because the back of my head is like you have to get this done and I thought like that was it was, I thought it was a very funny perspective of the show but it's totally true like it is like and it's the thing where it's like you feel so bad for Foggy because I feel like he didn't like the actually he has like that great line that that perfectly encapsulates that in that episode where he says like you know that dream you have in high school where like you have to give a presentation and you didn't bring your wear your pants I'm basically living that right now and it's like that's the perfect example of like where watching that scene is like oh fuck I can't I feel so bad for Foggy because he's such a nice dude and I love that this 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 season gives him. So many moments, like in the last season, had a couple of them, but this has even more of Foggy just being able to turn on like badass lawyer mode and just yes. like really out talk someone. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's it's a lot of really good stuff and feels like they. It's one of those areas where I think they saw what they had in season one and pushed yeah. it even further. And that's always what you want to see in the second or third season of a show. Yeah. So great stuff there. Um, and then we have that little arc with Wilson Fisk. Yeah, I thought that was as. Oh if you God. have to come back and use Wilson Fisk again, that was the right way to do it. Yeah. Cause I, and that just, like, at the end of that episode, my jaw fucking dropped when I realized what was happening. Because I didn't expect him to come back. Like, I okay. felt like if that was going to happen, I would have heard about it. And, like, so when that when Punisher gets sent to prison and it's like you have that scene where it's like, clearly they're building up to something. I'm like, who's going to be? Because I thought for a second the way they set it up is Stick it has just left, like, Matt's apartment to go, like, round up some people that's like for his war and I was like oh is like Stick going to like find Punisher and like because Punisher is in some ways what Stick wants Matt to be like this really badass dude who just can straight up kill people and it's like Stick needs people to fight in his war and so it's like that's the scene that immediately precedes Punisher in, in at the courtyard in prison and it's like you're getting closer and closer and like okay that's maybe that doesn't totally make sense without the framing of the scene who could it be and then it's like it just clicked in my head of like Oh fuck! Did they get him back? Like, because it's like you know, Vincent D'Onofrio is like a very successful actor. Like, he can take projects that he wants to take. So it's like it's not a guarantee that like he would just always come back whenever Marvel asks him to come back. So it's like if if he was going to be in the season, I felt like I would have heard about it. And so it's like when it's like he's on screen, it's like holy fucking shit! Because then it also just reminded me of how fucking amazing he is as Wilson Fisk. Like, yes. it's such a great performance and such a great version of that character. And it was one of those moments, kind of like uh, Hawkeye in the original Thor movie, of me feeling like this, is like, this is like reading a comic book. Of, like, if the Punisher gets sent to prison, and Wilson Fisk in an earlier storyline was sent to prison, those two characters would meet. And I feel like 
so often those kinds of dreams are dashed in TV shows and movies and stuff because of stuff like scheduling with actors and things like that. that I just don't expect it. Because it's like, it's really like they're not going to get him, but like he's not going to just want to come back for like two episodes or something. It's like, surely you would want like a bigger role. It's like, nope, it's there. It's like, God damn it, he makes the most out of those two episodes that he gets. Absolutely. And it was spoiled for me that he would be in the season, so yeah, I, I knew no it was coming. Idea. But it didn't it diminish those episodes. Like, it wasn't a surprise when yeah. I saw him. But I had the same feeling where it's like, I forgot just how good he was until I was watching him again. And in this new role where he had been, you know, emasculated, torn apart as, as the, all his ego had kind, yeah. of, kind of torn to shreds. And he's slowly trying to build it back up. Yeah. And the Punisher gives him, like, this last piece he needs. It's a really good little mini arc the season does. Yeah. And... I mean, it's some great scenes in the prison. The scene where they, you know, lock the Punisher. It's the seven minutes in heaven episode. Yeah. And yeah. They, the Punisher goes in and gets what he does what he needs to do. And then he's on his way out. And Wilson Fisk locks him in there because, of course, he does. Yeah. He's the bad guy. And then the Punisher has to fight his way out. Just a symphony of violence. Yes. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about, like, when you have the Punisher in the show and he needs to kill people. And you need to contrast that with Daredevil. The Punisher needs to fucking kill people. And that, that fight scene, which that was like, I rewatched that episode three fight scene and then I rewatched that, that Punisher fight scene as well before you came over to prepare for this podcast because I wanted to see those moments again. It's like that fight scene is so incredible and is another moment where, like, I feel like that is a, again a callback to season one where a lot of stuff in season two with Punisher, I feel like they are paralleling the Punisher with what the Daredevil went through in season one. And this is like, this is his hallway fight scene. This is his version yeah. of that scene. There is like in Daredevil, it's like he's beating up all these guys and it's like it ends and he's tired and everyone's on the ground groaning in pain. That fight, that same basic scenario with the Punisher ends with a bunch of, with the Punisher covered head to toe in blood. His like face just red in blood and body strewn on the floor. Like, and there's just some of those scenes where it's like he breaks a dude's head open with a hammer, like he stabs people, and when he stabs people, it's like he stab, 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 stab. It's like because it's like you're trying to kill a guy, you're just going to stab him over and over. He like snaps a dude's neck. It's like it, he kills like ten people in the course of like a three minute action scene, and it's like it's incredible and it's disgusting and it's frightening, but it's exactly the scene it needs to be, and it's like. Again, I feel like contrasting that by setting it up with a similar sort of hallway scenario as the Daredevil fight scene from season one, it gives you this point of reference for this character of like, okay, this is this is what Daredevil would be like if he was killing people, and this would be the show I would be watching and the character I would be following. Like, it's like this guy's not a hero. Like, I can't look at him do all this stuff and walk away from that feeling like, yeah, that was awesome. I feel super great. It's like, oh my god, what the fuck just Holy shit! And throughout all of that, I mean, John Bernthal and Vincent D'Onofrio play off each other so yeah. well. There's the the next episode starts with them having kind of their verbal sparring match over it all, and uh, the kingpin deciding to let him go, which is an interesting move. But I like how they've positioned the kingpin. He's like risen back to power, but within prison. Yeah, it, it's like it, it's there. There are like these storylines in. The show that, like, again, like, with, like, my comic book side just, like, make me really giddy as a fan. And it's, like, the storyline with... I, this must have been done in the comics, but I've never read it, of Daredevil representing the Punisher in court. That's such a great idea for a comic book storyline with those characters. And then the Punisher... It's like, the Kingpin using the Punisher in prison to kill people is a great idea. And it's, like, and the, like a great idea for a Kingpin storyline is the Kingpin in prison. And what does the Kingpin do in prison? 
he takes over the entire prison and like showing that step by step process like those like they just make such great uses of these characters that it's like I'm just watching this TV show I'm like I could watch this as a, or I could read this same storyline as a comic book and be like super happy and it's like it doesn't matter like that's how well they have captured these characters in these storylines it's like it might as well just be a comic book it's it's so great it is and really the the last scene with Kingpin this season is where Matt Murdock goes to talk yeah. to him and that scene just sends shivers down your spine yeah. because it's funny as Daredevil he was ultimately able to pull one over on Wilson Fisk Matt Murdock can't really do it and yeah. it's an interesting moment where Matt Murdock really tries to be confident in the face of this villain and the Kingpin still just, you know, bashes his fucking head in yeah. and and verbally one-ups him. Yeah, yeah. And it's it is like that I felt like that was like one of those moments that you really wish that like something you really wanted to happen near the end of season one of Daredevil was for Matt Murdock and and Wilson Fisk to have like a real encounter like that. And I'm really happy that they like managed to get that in there. Somewhere in this season. And it is... Because that was another thing about where we talked about forgetting how good Vincent D'Onofrio was as Wilson Fisk. And another part of that was forgetting how right they got, like, the Kingpin in terms of him being violent. That, like, the Kingpin is not just the guy who, like, sits back. And he's not the Godfather and just commands people to do things. It's like the Kingpin's a dude who gets his hands dirty. And he's a guy that, like, in a straight-up fist fight, the Kingpin could probably take out Punisher. It's like... Because he is a fucking just beast. You know, he is a, like, mountain of a man. And he will crush your skull with his bare hands. And it's like, you get a bit of that with that Matt Murdock sequence of where, like... He is controlled both mentally, verbally, and, like, absolutely in control physically all the time. It's like... It, it's just perfect. And it's clearly set up for season three or four or wherever yeah. they're going to go with it. I don't know what their plan is. I would not be surprised if he plays a major role next year. Yeah. But I, I liked that kind of as setup. It did not annoy me because it felt like the right end to this little story and a good preview to next year. Yeah. So. Yeah, it felt like a much more natural sort of sneak peek at where they're going for next year than season one had the stick episode with like the Black Sky stuff that was set up for season two. And that felt like it was like this weird jutting out episode from the season of like this just does not connect with any like like the the background stuff for daredevil's origins is nice to get but it's like the rest of the content of this episode feels like it just has no place in the rest of the season this like kingpin was much more naturally integrated yes so then we kind of get into the last act here with all the hand stuff and yeah. i want to back up a little bit so we taught john bernthal's great yes love him. 100 everyone else all the returning players great yep uh what did you think of elodie young as electra uh, I kind of was hot and cold on on that character. Elektra is not a character I know much about from the comics. Like it's something where it's like I'm never really gotten to that side of Daredevil that I know that's like the Frank Miller thing is everyone that everyone says it's so those are the Daredevil comics you need to read. But I just don't. I my experience is Frank Miller. It's like I just don't want to read any more Frank Miller stuff, even if I know it's from the good era of Frank Miller. I just can't bring myself to do it anymore. I get it. And I, I, what I thought about Elektra is that I thought Elodie Young was good throughout. I yeah. think she was the right casting, and I think in at least that those first couple episodes, she's really effective as that counterpoint to Matt and someone who is a little unhinged but seems kind of human and down to earth in a lot of ways. I did think once they rushed through an awful lot of mythology in those last few episodes right. and suddenly put she's the black sky and Matt goes kind of gaga for her in a way that seems a little weird and all this stuff, then I thought it's not her fault as an actress. It's no, just there's yeah. nothing to hang that performance on because she stops being the character we were building and becomes a MacGuffin. 
and it's not that interesting. Yeah, so. they put too much weight on her as a character near the end without enough setup. That's definitely true. I mean, those last few episodes just felt to me like the end of a season that was Electra-centric, not Punisher-centric, which yeah. is really where the weight was. No matter what you think of the two characters, there is more Punisher material here. Yeah. Yeah, but they, like Electra was a character I liked, but it was also something where it's like, I since I don't like care about Electra as a character, like I can't come at it from like a comic book side. But I did think like, especially I really loved the flashbacks you had to Matt in his college days. I always loved that. I loved in season one when they did that with Matt and Foggy. But I thought like that sequence was so good where with the whole thing of where they, they break into that guy's mansion yes. and then you find out that it's the guy who killed Matt's dad and that Electra wants him to kill him. It's like, I feel like that was such a fascinating flashback because that, that might be from a comic book story. I have no idea. But I felt like that was such an interesting idea of like putting such a like fine point on what has been going on this season and connecting that to Matt as a character and giving you some of that like that some of that structure of season one back again of like where a lot of season one was connecting things that are happening to happening now to a flashback with Matt back in his college days or when he was a little kid and stuff. And that was like, okay, like this is, it reminds you that this is an ongoing issue with this character of whether or not he's going to kill people in that moment in his past when he's just like, decided and like the main reason why he's not doing it is like he just can't bring himself to do it and it's like if he didn't do it and kill the guy who killed his dad he's never going to kill someone on purpose like he can't right so yeah I loved all of that I think there's definitely a stretch there where they very seamlessly keep the themes going even as the setting and characters change yeah um, and then the, yeah so then we have those last few episodes where we get really heavy in on the hand I think the action can just throughout the season the, the action yeah. scenes are just next level they are all phenomenal there's one Near the start of, I think, episode 11, where the hand infiltrates that hospital yeah. where um, Rosario Dawson is, Claire Temple, and they throw Claire Temple out a window. Daredevil jumps out and somehow rescues yeah. her. That whole thing is like, I can't believe I saw that on a TV show. Yeah. Um, but I felt like the, you could just feel the show kind of coming apart at the seams a little bit sure. of where it had felt very coherent and unified. Suddenly it felt like there were kind of maybe two or three different shows going on. And all of them had really good things going on, but they didn't yeah. really feel like they were cohering. Uh, and I felt that most with episode 12, where we have the end of the Punisher's arc, basically, for this season. Yeah, yeah, where, where he kills he, the blacksmith. Yes, and all of that stuff. And it's good. Karen has a lot of great material there. Uh, and then on the other side, you have Daredevil trying to stop Elektra from killing Stick and all that stuff, and the mythology, and it just... On one hand, we have the Punisher thing, which is pretty gritty and down-to-earth. And the other, we have mystical mumbo-jumbo that makes little to no sense. Sure. But, yeah. So. I think I have a higher tolerance for mystical mumbo-jumbo than you. I, I, it's not that I have a low tolerance. It's just that that contrast is weird, and I don't think they ever really gave it the breathing room it needed to fully bake. Sure, I guess. So. I, did, I didn't have much of a problem with that part of it. Okay. Yeah. I'd like. I will say, like, I am 100% in on this show's dedication to having ninjas. Oh, absolutely. I am pretty thrilled about that. I liked that there were moments when I was watching Daredevil that I was not 100% sure if I was watching Daredevil or Power Rangers, and that is not an insult. That is a compliment in my book. Like, (laughs) fucking yeah. Like, there are just like a hundred ninjas on top of this hospital, infiltrating this hospital, and they're just ninjas. They're just ninjas. Like, it just made me so happy about how far we've come from 2001 with the original X-Men movie, when it's like, you'd like everything had to, like, you couldn't have any colors, you couldn't have anything happy or fun or ridiculous or campy. It's like it all had to be black leather all the time. And then now here I am in 2016 watching a fucking Daredevil show, which is like 
of all the Marvel heroes, Daredevil is the one that, like, other than, I guess, Punisher, that you can just go strictly, like, super gritty crime drama all the time with. And even with Daredevil, they're like, nope, ninjas. We're just, like, they're ninjas. They're awesome. And you don't need to justify it. You don't need to have, like, a line of dialogue of someone making fun of it. It's like, nope, they're just fucking ninjas. No, it's great. And they're really good villains for Daredevil to fight. Yeah. Like, you can build a lot of great fight scenes. I love, I mean, the visual at the end of episode, whatever episode it is, where they're climbing up the hospital. Yeah. And Daredevil's just like, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to deal with this, aren't yeah. I? That's a great visual, all of that. Stuff. I love how Foggy was in the hospital bed, like, hearing, like, all these, like, grappling cooks attaching to the hospital. Like, what the hell is going yeah. on? No, it's all great. I There's just a point where... The hand stuff kept going and going, and at a certain point I realized, wait, I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. I don't know who the main villain is. I mean, there's the Nobu guy, but you can't really call him the main antagonist. And and I don't know what the stakes are if Matt fails, because I'm not sure what he's trying to do. Like... It's just, and, and then the, all the stuff with Electra being the chosen one comes really out. Yeah, I was not super into their whole like Electra being the black sky thing. That's what I mean by the mystical mumbo yeah. jumbo, where it's like there's mythology, but it's not like it's really explained or feels organic. It just yeah. is like it's there because something has to happen at the end of the season. And I also, like, I might be wrong about this, but I really don't think that Black Sky thing is something from the comics. Like, I've never heard that before. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's something made up for the show. It's, like, kind of a weird element. Yeah, it, it's, it just doesn't feel totally in place because, again, season one, Wilson Fisk wants to, like, level half the city. Yeah. The stakes are fairly clear. So this season, it's like, well, what if he doesn't beat the hand? What do they do? I don't know. They plunge the entire world into darkness. They're ninjas. Like, okay. what, do, what do you expect of them? They're in. The, they're not just ninjas. They're like zombie immortal ninjas. Like that's I'm, true. As far as things that you can be pretty confident you should be fighting, zombie immortal ninjas are like pretty high up on that list. They, you, they just need to be Nazis. That's the only thing that can make them more okay to fight. You are. You can be totally confident fighting them. It's just this show has a pretty good legacy of setting stakes for things. Sure. Yeah. Is all I'm saying. So anyway, and then we get to the finale. I didn't really like it, but um, like the. I kind of. I was so frustrated by the lack of just good. Karen Matt interaction in those last couple episodes. I almost wish that last scene had gone on longer than it did. Right. But I understand why they cut where they did yeah. because that's obviously the story for next year, which is yeah. I think we're going to pick up and Karen's going to have to figure out how she feels about that. Yeah, and it's like, and it is something that I like that I feel like season one and season two have such like different arcs in terms of where they end. Where season one was about like these three people. Like having to come together as a team to form like like Nelson and Murdoch and and take down the Kingpin legally. And that was like we, at the end of season one. It's like Nelson Murdoch has like is finally has its feet. It's like we've we've taken down the Kingpin. Not just like Matt hasn't just beaten the shit out of him at an alley. Like we have him in jail. And like we're all like all going. And that's how like season two starts. And then season two ends with like yep Nelson Murdoch is shut down because. Like, Matt has gone crazy, and he's off only being Daredevil stuff, and, like, Karen doesn't know anything about that. And I think, like, that is a really good moment to end Season 2 on of, like, you need to take the first step in sort of, like, repairing that, or, like, it would be kind of weird with Season 3 started without that, like, gesture of, like, yeah, these are, like, Foggy and Karen are still going to be, like, the, like, main characters of the Daredevil show along with Daredevil. Like, we need to, like, have that moment where he's sort of reaching out to her. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm not sure what's going on behind the scenes. I do like the creative team's confidence that they seem pretty confident that, A, they're getting season three, yeah. and that none of this will be interrupted by that whole Defenders thing they're maybe right, going to do. Yeah. Because it at this point, I would be okay seeing that Defenders miniseries. I don't need it. Like, sure. the Daredevil show, I want more of that. The Jessica Jones show, 
I want more of that. Luke Cage looks like it'll be good. I'm fine with crossovers between them. I'm much more engaged, though, in the idea of these shows continuing as shows because they really work as TV shows that are ongoing. Yeah. And for this, you know, for some of the things in season two to feel totally earned, you have to have a season three that pays yeah. off yeah. on it. Yeah. So I'd be surprised if there wasn't a season three. Like I'm sure there will be. It's a big hit. It's just I always worry about you know. It, if something got rushed and they had to push that off to do Defenders, but right. they're only now casting Iron Fist, so... Yeah, I feel like Defenders is, like, off in the future. Like, yeah, I don't so feel like it's around the corner. I'm sure this time next year we'll get a season three of Daredevil, and that will be well-earned. Yeah. Um, it will be kind of funny. I think all of these shows will wind up having a couple of seasons before we get to that Defenders point. Which I think um, is, like, kind of the right way to do it. Like, Because yeah. I, I am really excited about the idea of Defenders, but I'm with you that I don't... Want like I don't want it yet necessarily, and also like I don't even know necessarily if I fully want it because I need the Luke Cage show and I need the Iron Fist show. It's like I want to like see the full like cast of players because I do like at the very least I know for damn sure that I want to see Matt Murdock and Jessica Jones interact. Like I yes. I want that on screen because those characters are so good. But yeah, like the I don't well, know what the structure of like what the Defenders could. Be. We forgot to talk about the big crossover, which is that Foggy's going to work for yeah. Um, Hogarth. Uh, Hogarth, yeah, for the from Jessica Hogarth, Jones. Yeah. So they got Carrie Ann Moss on here, and so does that mean? Do you think we'll see Foggy in season two of Jessica Jones? I hope so. Like I hope like little appearances that would be good. Like because that was like the one main thing about the Jessica Jones I felt like was a missed opportunity. Was like there's so if you can't get Matt like whatever, but like Foggy is a character I feel like is so ripe for being able to just like throw him into a, like a crossover and pop him into like. Of a scene in an episode of one of these other shows because he's like a lawyer. It's like there's so many times in all these shows where a lawyer comes in handy and you have a random one-off lawyer character. You can just have Foggy Nelson. He's great. Yeah. No, I think that could be fun. And I, we're definitely into a point with this larger Marvel Netflix TV verse where I'm kind of wondering how are these crossovers going to start working? Because yeah. you would expect the Luke Cage show should have a significant amount of Kristen Ritter. I feel like in it. Probably. Um, Although he, he's moving to Harlem is like part of the Luke okay. Cage thing. So like he's not in the Hell's Kitchen area anymore. So I feel like that's going to be part of the reason of like why Kristen Ritter's not going to be in the Luke Cage show all the time. She doesn't need to be in it all the time. It would be weird if we got through that season and she didn't appear, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because her and Luke Cage obviously have a certain relationship that we need to follow up on. Yeah. And then with Iron Fist, I mean... For a long time, it was Power Man and Iron Fist in the comics. You want them to have their friendship yeah. and stuff. So those two probably have to cross-pollinate in some way. I'm guessing... I mean, they've cast Iron Fist. That's probably because he's going to be on Luke Cage. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. It's just like there's going to have to be a lot of mixing between the shows long before we ever get to the point of having an actual Defender series. Yeah. So the whole plan... I, but I like that they're letting it be organic. They're, they're yeah. very clearly adapting. It's not like their their original plan was they would just do one season of each and then do Defenders, and they're like, no, we need to do other things. Yeah, and like that's fine. Daredevil was so popular that it's like, okay, like let's do another season of that. Like, yeah. no reason not to. Absolutely. So, and I'm you know Jessica Jones is one I'm so curious what season two even is of that. Yeah, show. yeah, because like Jessica Jones the TV show felt like it was so much more attached to the Purple Man than than Daredevil was to King to Kingpin. Yeah, so it's like yeah, you really need to rethink your structure for season two of that. I mean, Daredevil feels like a TV show, and Jessica Jones felt like a mini series that somehow aired for thirteen hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and I really love a lot of Jessica Jones, but that was its its one f- flaw. I thought. Yeah. Um, that I did really like thinking about like all the crossover stuff. I am always really happy to see Rosario Dawson as Claire Temple. Like she's. She's always great, and I did like that in this season, I feel like her getting fired at the end is like, 
oh, so that's how she gets to go to Harlem to be in the Luke Cage show now. Oh, good Because idea. she is like, she is the Ur character. She is the one that crosses over to all shows. Because everyone, yeah. everyone needs a little bit of Rosario Dawson. She's just amazing. She's amazing. She's great. I love that she's somehow free enough to do all of this. That's great. Yeah. She's a fairly popular actress, so it's good that she's up for all this stuff. Um, definitely good. So, okay, Daredevil Season 3. We yeah. know we want it to be Daredevil putting his life back together. Yeah, yeah. What else do you want to see out of it? I mean, when do they bring Bullseye in? I don't know, like, again, like, like, since I never did that whole Frank Miller Daredevil thing, I don't give a shit about Bullseye. Like, yeah. you can do Bullseye whenever you want. Like, honestly, now the thing I'm most looking forward to is seeing what, what Kingpin is up to next, because I feel like, I don't, I like, a, you, you, I don't want him to be the only, like, sort of villain or antagonistic character in season three. Obviously, he's not, because you have all the hand stuff going on. But I do think that the little bits you get of him here and the fact that, like, he's, you only get a little bit of him in season two means like made me really excited for yeah I just want to see him come back in a really big way in season three and, and, see, and like what he's what he's planning and again I think with all those pieces in place I really do hope that they do a season three that is less serialized more yeah let's do a kingpin story let's do let's bring in bullseye I don't want him to be the whole season but no, let's do God. two or three episodes of bullseye let's do a little more with the hand but I feel like there's a possibility now to rather than say the season needs to be one long movie. Let's make it a little more broken up and bring in more characters and let the character arcs carry us yeah. through while the villains maybe change up a little more. To me, my biggest question mark with all of this is what do they do with the Punisher? Because I feel like the reception for that character has been so positive across the board that like, I have to imagine that, that Marvel is looking at that and thinking, like, let's make a Punisher show. And it's like, And I would be open to that. Like, I don't know... Like it's like it could be good, it could be bad, but I'd be open to it. My question is just, I already think even at their best, these Marvel Netflix shows sometimes struggle under the thirteen episode wait. I yeah. really don't know how you do a thirteen episode Punisher thing, especially when he's been defined through these other characters, and it obviously won't be Charlie Cox and Deborah Ann Wall in every episode. Yeah, yeah. So, what is the larger world they could build with that? Of course, The Punisher has a long history in comics, so it can be done. I just wonder if that graphically on screen, yeah. if if it's there. I mean, because then, do, but then also the other question is if like he doesn't get his own show, that means like well he would have to be like a big part of Daredevil season three, and then what do you do with him? Right, going further. That's kind of a hard question for me to like sort of answer. It kind of feels like either we're done with him. Or he has to get his own show. And yeah. I don't... Because, like, this is, like, something that, like, I talked about a little bit in our discussion of, I feel like, a lot of Punisher's stuff in this season parallels how, like, Daredevil was in season one. And that, like, goes to him at the end of the season getting his costume and, yes. like, accepting himself as being the Punisher. And that, like, him as being the full Punisher does make it hard to imagine, like, how do you integrate him now into Daredevil, like, more fully? Because he's not... A supporting character, like, he clearly is going to have his own agendas doing his own thing because he's taken up his identity as this, like, vigilante. Yes, I I would like to see maybe a show, but I would also like to say to Netflix and Marvel, it doesn't have to be 13 hours. You could oh, do, yeah, they, yeah, I'm not you, saying that. You could do six to start or something. Like, you know, I just, sometimes, and I feel this with a lot of Netflix shows where... Why did you do that many hours? You didn't. It's a, it's Netflix. It doesn't have to be a long episode of order or something. If you have this, um, I just I'm, think I'm not, it's like like I just imagine like making a show like this. It's hard to know how many episodes you're going to need to right. have before you start making the show. Right. But I'm just saying it would be maybe to test. That's just the one that will be. I think of all these the hardest to do because the Punisher. 
The Punisher, this is the fourth live-action Punisher. Yeah. There have been three yeah. movies. It would seem like he's a character easier to do on movies, but that's never really worked. So he's clearly tough to do in live-action. They hit gold here. I wouldn't necessarily go all in and do a full TV show next, just because no matter what, Punisher is tricky. Yeah, and you have to yeah. be careful because it could be very off-putting very fast, is all I'm saying. But I do really want to see more of this version of that character. Absolutely. Like, like He's like... John Bernthal is just so good, and their take on this character is so interesting. Ironically, my my answer would be I actually think it would be really good off of this to do like a two-hour Punisher movie, but they're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, that would, be, that would be weird. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I feel sure. like you could probably do that. And just... Now that Deadpool like, has proved that R-rated <laughs> movies just automatically make money, Jonathan, so there you go. Actually, you know, I've that the last one they did, Punisher Warzone, has become something of a cult. Yeah, I've heard that's really good. I'm probably going to watch that at some point now. Yeah, I'll, I want to do that. It's it was kind of the one of the last of the non Marvel Marvel movies where the director, uh, in that case, Lexi Alexander, one of the only women to direct a superhero movie, got the movie taken away from her, and so I know right. it was kind of compromised. But the people who saw it tended to like it. So, yeah. So. Definitely interesting. I, I like that, you know, Marvel got Daredevil back from Fox, and then they got Punisher back from whoever had him, and then they decided, fuck, let's put them together. Yeah. They're really making thing. use of the IPs they're getting back. and Yeah, and, and I do think, like, it's it's like fun to like take a step back and think about this. Of like, you know, like, not only has Marvel now, like, done their whole, like, movie thing so successfully, but I really like that they're... Like, Marvel is a part of, like, breaking this new ground for, like, what TV is going to be going forward, which is, like, not airing shows on network television, like, on those sorts of schedules. Like, whether or not it's always going to be the Netflix model of, like, dumping everything at once or not, like, the future of this kind of media is streaming. And I, it's really fascinating to me that, like, Netflix now with Daredevil and then also Jessica Jones is, like, a little more flawed but still a really good show. Like, is showing how, like, that format, even if, like, there's a lot of kinks in it, like, can make a really, really great show. Oh, yeah. I mean, just having... You get to do it as a cable show. And, yeah. You know, they could have done something like this for HBO, but I don't think that would ever have quite flown with that business model. Yeah. Netflix has a much more open, kind of niche-oriented business model, and it makes... It allows these shows to work, you know. And I... I have I could always get into my thing of I don't fully understand I understand the Netflix business model on a monetary side. There are things about it creatively where the whole dumping in at once I think has weird expectations on creators and as you say there are kinks being worked out because of it. Yeah. Um, but these you know Daredevil definitely Im- improved in some interesting ways this year. Didn't improve in other ways, but overall like yeah, I Marvel is doing a lot of really good work all around. So Yeah, definitely like finding Good ways to tell like stories with their different characters that don't always have to be big movies. And my hope is, and I think this is not going to happen because it'd be too expensive. But now that they have Spider Man, I just want them to fucking do a Spider Man TV show. Like I kind of don't give a shit about seeing new Spider Man movies, but I know they're going to like, like it would be so much harder to do a live action Spider Man TV show. Like the the constraints on that in terms of like needing to have CGI and everything with them web slinging. It's, like, so much more than what Daredevil seems like you could make on a pretty modest budget. It's like, god damn it. Like, some of those characters, like Daredevil, like Punisher, like Spider-Man, are made for a serialized format and only really work, like, perfectly in that format. Like, Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 1 are great movies and feel like almost kind of miracles when I think about how well they're able to use that character. Absolutely. But at least we're getting a Marvel version of Spider-Man. Yes. And that alone will be exciting because, again... They've cast everyone perfectly. Yeah. This is nuts at this point. 
I mean, they got the fucking Punisher right. Like yeah. at this point, they can do anything mm-hmm. with their fucking casting. Whoever casts for Marvel, they know what they're doing. I'd imagine it's probably actually several people. But it was many, yes. Tis. But you know, John Bernthal, I, I had not really. Heard, I've seen him in other things, but I, he was not really fully on my radar. And man, he is—he's going to be in demand after this. Is all yeah, I have to say. Yeah. Like I would be interested if they could make an Emmy push for him, for instance. Like. Yeah, like I, a, you deserve I, it. I think like, he would totally deserve yeah. it. Netflix has has been getting there with their Emmy stuff. Really, it's just been House of Cards, which is shit, and Orange is the New Black, which is good. Um, but maybe they can branch out into some of these other ones because I think, God, if you know, if you got him into, into supporting actor and then submitted episode four as his episode, yeah, yeah, that's competitive at that point. He's really, really good, definitely. So that's Daredevil season two. This was fun to talk about. Yeah. I do want to, before we completely move on, I just want, like, wanted, like, one thing before I forget about it with Daredevil Season 2, because we talked about, like, their whole, like, the dilemma between, like, Daredevil and Punisher in terms of, like, do you kill, do you not kill? I like that basically their answer to that question, and they reaffirm it through how they develop Punisher and then through some of the other stuff through the season, is that, like, it's like, maybe it's right and maybe it's wrong, but the number one thing is, like, that the Punisher, I think, needed to learn and that, like, Daredevil needed to be reminded of is that, like, if you're killing these criminals, like, they're not just criminals, they're people. And I feel like that was, like, the thing with Punisher that they did so well was, like, he's not just this guy who kills people. Like, he has this history, he has this reasons for doing what he does. It's like, maybe he's crazy, maybe he's not crazy, but he's certainly in pain. And he has, like, his own history. And all those people that he kills, like, they're, they're someone's brother, or they're someone's father, or they're someone's son, or they're someone's best friend. It's like, people are complicated, and just killing them is... An extreme action that that generally should not be taken, and I think like that was just like the, the way that the season handled that. I thought was really smart. I, I love that. Absolutely. Note to Zack Snyder: Watch <laughs> yeah. Daredevil. Yeah. Note to Zack Snyder: People like criminals aren't monsters. They don't deserve to be exterminated. Yes. Batman would not generally call them weeds that need to be exterminated. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah, fuck. Um, next week, I think we'll probably talk about something a little more fun. Uh, yeah. Although Daredevil has plenty of fun things in it, it's a little darker. Hey man, that chain. That's, whew, absolutely. Uh, next week, I think, might be our Uncharted retrospective episode, because I think it would fit in our schedule pretty well. If not, we'll find something else to do. And uh, should we, Sean will have New York stories at some yeah, point. Yeah, I guess I'm hoping to meet Daredevil. I'm hoping <laughs> not to meet the Punisher. That's my goal. I'm going to Hell's Kitchen. I, I hear it's really nice these days, but... Yeah. Nice. 